Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. All right, how many of you were here this morning or were somewhere else at the time? All right, how many of you are here now? All right, how many don't respond to surveys? Three out of 10 don't respond to surveys, Pastor Mike. Uh, how many were not here last night or this morning? Where were you? Oh, how many didn't see the first section? A few of us. Okay, let's do a real brief overview of what we've covered already. Okay, we started out uh, in the service talking about Michael Monsor, a United States Navy SEAL who literally sacrificed his life to save his two Navy SEAL buddies. He dove on a grenade to save them. The United States Navy actually named a ship after him because of his heroic act. He won the Medal of, of Honor. And uh, we said that a lot of people don't think Christianity is true. Michael Monsor died for his friends. Has anyone died for you? And the answer is yes, Jesus did. But many people don't think the story's true. And we said there, there are four questions you need to answer to show that it's true. And these are the four questions. Does truth exist? Does God exist? Are miracles possible? And is the New Testament true, particularly with regard to the resurrection? Because if Jesus rose from the dead, then Christianity's true. And this morning and, and last night a little bit, we started to talk a little bit about the uh, first question, does truth exist? And we started by talking about, of course, Jack Nicholson. You remember this, right? Let's see if we can get this right this time, okay? Because this morning and last night, you guys were really weak. Because when Tom Cruise said to him, I want the truth, Nicholson said, You can't get the truth! You can't handle the truth! That was pretty good, all right? That was much better. These people learn, Pastor Mike. They learn. And we said, when people say there is no truth, you should ask that person a question. What should the question be? Is that true? And we went through a series of statements that you hear in our culture that are literally self-defeating. To say there's no truth is a self-defeating statement because it's claim, it claims to be true when, in fact, it's also claiming there is no such thing as true statements, right? And we went through other statements like, uh, there are no absolutes, are you absolutely sure? All truth is relative, is that a relative truth? You ought not judge, why are you judging me for judging, right? We went through all this this morning, right? And we pointed out that these statements are self-defeating, and the way you can discover that they're self-defeating is to turn the claim on itself. So this is what we did this morning and last night. And then we moved on to the next question. We know that truth exists. The next question we wanted to ask, does God exist? And we said there were three arguments we wanted to look at for the existence of God. The first argument from the beginning of the universe, known as the cosmological argument. The second argument from design, known as the teleological argument. Telos, again, is a Greek word meaning design or purpose. And then we also said the moral argument shows that God exists because if there were no God, you couldn't say that, say, torturing babies for fun was wrong or murdering six million people in a holocaust is wrong. That would just be your opinion. And this morning, we started to talk about the first argument, that the universe had a beginning out of nothing. And we said that atheists are even admitting this. The most famous physicist in the world until he died was Stephen Hawking. 
and he was an atheist, and he said almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. And we discovered that if space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing, whatever created space, time, and matter can't be made of space, time, and matter, right? We said the cause had to be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, and intelligent. We've got six attributes for God, and we haven't even opened the Bible yet, okay? Now, how do we know this is the Christian God? We don't yet. We've got to go through the rest of these questions, okay? So that is what we covered this morning. And you're sitting there, Frank, you just said that in like two minutes. You wasted like 40 minutes of my time this morning. Why didn't you just start with that, all right? All right, so now we're going to pick it up at the next argument, the teleological argument, and this is all new, all right? Are you guys ready to go? Yeah. All right. All right, so we know that there was a beginning. And the question now is, was the beginning fine-tuned? In other words, was it designed or did it just kind of happen randomly? Because there's two aspects of this design argument. One is, is the universe is designed, and the second part of it is you are designed, life is designed. So let's look at the universe first. Scientists have discovered in recent decades that the universe is highly fine-tuned. That if you were to change any one of a number of factors about our universe, virtually imperceptibly, there would either be no universe, or there would be a universe that couldn't support life. Our universe is balanced on a razor's edge. And even the atheists are admitting this. Again, we're going to start with an atheist, Stephen Hawking, who pointed out that the expansion rate at the beginning of the universe was supremely fine-tuned. Here's what he said. He said, if the expansion rate of the universe was different by one part in a thousand million million a second after the Big Bang, the universe would have collapsed back on itself or never developed galaxies. In other words, if the expansion rate was that infinitesimally different from the very beginning, none of us would be here. Now, you can't make any sort of evolutionary explanation for this. You can't say the expansion rate by chance evolved to this point, whatever that means. Why? because the expansion rate started at the beginning. It's one of the initial conditions of the universe. It seems to me that the same being that created space, time, and matter is the same being that made the expansion rate precisely what it needed to be for us to be here. If that rate were any different, none of us would be here. This is called the fine-tuning of the universe, okay? Uh, now, it's not just the expansion rate that's fine-tuned, the gravitational force is fine-tuned. If it were altered by more than 1 in 10 to the 40th power, we wouldn't exist. What's 1 in 10 to the 40th power? That's one part in 1 with 40 zeros following it. You say, Frank, I can't get my head around that number. I know, neither can I, so let me give you an illustration. Take a tape measure and stretch it across the entire known universe. That's a long way. You can't get that tape measure at Lowe's, okay? <laughs> Set the gravitational force at a particular inch mark on that tape measure. I realize gravity's not measured in inches, but this is just to give you a scale idea in your mind. If the strength of gravity were different by one inch in either direction across the scale as wide as the entire known universe, we wouldn't be here. That's one 
in 10 to the 40 precision. I don't have enough faith to believe that that value just landed there by chance. And oh, by the way, is chance a cause? Does chance cause things? Who caused this? Chance, he was just here. No, no, no. <laughs> chance is not a cause. Chance is a word we use to describe mathematical possibilities. Chance doesn't do a thing. In fact, when scientists use the word chance, you know what they really mean? Uh, we don't know. Look, there's only two reasons why that value is exactly where it needs to be. It was either designed to be there or it wasn't designed to be there. Which is more reasonable? Somebody designed it to be there. This is why the atheists are saying this is the hardest argument to answer if you're an atheist. How does all this just happen? And it's not just the universe that appears to be designed. Our solar system appears to be designed. Let's take a look at our solar system here. Here we are, third rock from the sun. If we were just a little bit closer to or a little bit further away, we couldn't survive. A little bit closer, we'd burn up. A little bit further away, we'd freeze. We are what scientists call the Goldilocks zone. It's not too hot. It's not too cold. It is? That's a lie. It's too hot here in the summer. It's like living on the face of the sun. The axial tilt, 23 and a half degrees. Change that slightly, we don't exist. Earth rotation, 24 hours, change that slightly, we don't exist. The size and distance of the moon from us, change that slightly, we don't exist. Oxygen in this room right now is 21%. If it were 25%, spontaneous fires would break out. If it were 15%, we'd all suffocate. If Jupiter was not in its current orbit, we wouldn't be able to exist where we are right now. Why? What does Jupiter do for us right here? Jupiter's gravitational force is so strong that it attracts most of the meteors and space junk to it rather than us. Jupiter is a cosmic vacuum cleaner. In fact, if you take a close-up look at Jupiter, you see these dark marks here? Those dark marks are comet fragment strikes that are bigger than the Earth. Thank God for Jupiter. You know, I saw a headline once. It said something like, uh, scientists think major meteor to, hurt, to hit Earth at, in 2040. I am rooting for Jupiter. <laughs> Jupiter can save us. Saturn does the same thing, by the way. In fact, you want to see the planets? Here they are. There's uh, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, Earth. Look at poor Pluto down here. You know, Pluto recently has been demoted as a planet. I don't know about you, but I think it's size discrimination. <laughs> Take a look at this. You can hardly see Pluto. And by the way, what if Pluto identifies as a planet? <laughs> right? Right, what do we say to that? Take a look at this. That's Arcturus, that's another star in our galaxy. Here's the sun over here. Jupiter is one pixel in size on this scale. Earth is invisible. Pluto, forget about it. All right, All right keep an eye on Arcturus now. 
Where's Arcturus? Now. Way over here, that's Arcturus. That's Antares, that's another star in our galaxy. The sun is one pixel in size on this scale. Jupiter is invisible. Earth, Pluto, forget about it. In fact, if the Earth was the size of a golf ball, Beetlejuice here. Look, I don't name the stars, all right? If the Earth was the size of a golf ball, Beetlejuice would be five or six Empire State Buildings high. The heavens are awesome. And this is just in our galaxy. This is not outside our galaxy. And the average distance between stars in our ga galaxy is about 30 trillion miles. And all that distance is necessary for us to exist here on Earth. Now, 30 trillion miles, how far is that? Far. It'll take you at least two tanks of gas and a Toyota Prius to go 30 trillion miles. A number of years ago, my wife and I took our three sons to Tucson because her, her parents lived there, and we went to the Desert Museum, south side of Tucson. If you ever get to go there, uh, you go out in the desert, and if you're out there at night and it's a clear night, you can see thousands of stars in the sky. So we're out there this night, and the guide says, wow, it's so clear tonight that if we look up at 9.03, we will see the space shuttle in orbit. It was up at that point said, oh, come on, we're not going to see the space shuttle. It's only 120 feet long. It's 350 miles up. We're not going to see it. Oh, me of little faith. At 9.03, the guide goes, look. And we look up in the sky about 70 degrees above the horizon. There's an object streaking out of the western desert sky relative to us about like this. I mean, it's really cooking. When it got right about here, it disappeared. I don't know whether Scotty beamed it up or what. Actually, what happened was, despite the fact that we were in total darkness, the space shuttle was so high up that the sun was still reflecting off of it. And when it got out of the range of the sun, we couldn't see it anymore. Now, when the space shuttle was in orbit, the space shuttle was traveling at about 18,000 miles an hour. That's five miles per second. You got trouble getting to work in the morning? Take the space shuttle. You'll be there five miles a second. Think about how fast that is. Well, I did a little calculation to try and figure out how long would it take us if we could get in the space shuttle and go from our star, the sun, to another star an average distance away, 30 trillion miles. In other words, how long would it take us to go 30 trillion miles if we could go five miles per second? How long do you think it would take us? A long time. You must be a math major. Yeah. <laughs> it would take us 201,450 years. That means if you got in the space shuttle at the time of Christ and started traveling from our star, the sun, to another star inside our galaxy an average distance away, you've been going five miles a second for 2,000 years. You would be less than one hundredth of the way there right now now and we're going to explore space no we're not <laughs> we're not going anywhere in space we can hardly get out of our solar system it took us nine years to get to pluto there is no way we're going to get to another planet outside of our solar system 
it's just too far and it's too dangerous. But let's say somehow we figure out interplanetary travel. Let's say we can go warp speed. Even at warp speed, the next nearest star, I'm talking about speed of light, 186,000 miles a second, it'll take you almost four years to get there. But let's say we figure this out someday and we get to a planet and we plant our flag. Now this is a little bit disturbing, but I'm gonna show it to you anyway. We plant our flag and then this happens. Beans are not for astronauts, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> to show you how analytical my wife is, I showed her that video, and she smiled just a little bit, and she said, that's illogical, there's no sound in space. <laughs> now the psalmist says this, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. The question is, how high are the heavens above the earth? We know there's 30 trillion miles between stars in our galaxy, and there's billions of stars in our galaxy, but how many stars are there in the entire universe? The Hubble Space Telescope has helped us discover that number of years ago, they trained the Hubble Space Telescope on 1 26th millionth of the sky. What's 1 26th millionth of the sky? Go outside tonight, put a piece of rice on the end of your finger, hold it up at arm's length. That piece of rice represents about 1 26th millionth of the sky. And so they trained the Hubble on this period for, or this, this section for about 11 days. They call this Hubble ultra deep field. You can Google this. You can see all these pictures I'm about to show you. This is all in the public domain. And I don't know if you can see this here on the screen, but along the bottom of the screen here, these are mountains. See that right there? Okay. This is a section of the southern sky in the southern hemisphere. When I start this little video they put together, you're going to see the constellations come up, and then Hubble is going to zero in on 1 26 millionth of the sky. There is no audio, it's just video, and they're going to end on the picture that they discovered. Are you guys ready to go? Yeah. All right, here it is, Hubble Ultra Deep Field. There are the constellations. Now let's zoom out. What you're looking at are nearly 10,000 galaxies in one 26 millionth of the sky. 
Now you know what the Bible means when it says the heavens declare the glory of God. So how many stars are there in the entire universe? The number of stars in the universe are about equivalent to the number of grains of sand on all the beaches, on all the earth, times 100,000. And to go from one star to another star just in our galaxy, going five miles a second, will take you over 200,000 years. The heavens are awesome. Ladies and gentlemen, I don't ever want to hear anybody ever again at Calvary Chapel, Port St. Lucie, ever use the word awesome in any other context unless you're talking about God or the heavens. All right? Awesome shot, dude. Awesome shirt, dude. Awesome TikTok video. No! What are you going to say for God? Now, when you look to the heavens, what do you basically see? An infinite expanse. That's why God says, look to the heavens if you want to know what I'm like. Everything in our experience is limited. It's finite. It has limits to it. Even the heavens have limits to it. But when you think about stars equivalent to sand grains on 100,000 Earths, and it'll take you over 200,000 years be between those stars at five miles a second, you get some, of, some, some kind of idea of what infinity is about, right? That's the point. Now, the verse I put up there a few minutes ago from Psalm 103, that's only half the verse. Here's the rest of the verse. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. This God's love and justice are so infinite, they're without limits, yet somehow he removes our transgressions from us. How can he do that if he's infinitely just? What he does is he takes our punishment on himself. So he remains just, and he's also the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, says Paul in Romans, uh, Romans 3.26. That's why Jesus is the only way. It's not an arbitrary claim. It's the fact that you, there's no way you can reconcile infinite justice and infinite love unless God himself takes our justice on himself. That's what he does. Now, when you think about sand grains on 100,000 Earths, and it's going to take you over 200,000 years at five miles a second between those stars. Do you feel insignificant? Yeah, you shouldn't. Why? Because the heavens aren't made in the image of God, but you are. In fact, not only do the heavens appear to be designed, you appear to be designed. This is you in the womb at 11 weeks. Question, is this animal, mineral, vegetable, or human? Human. In fact, let's go back even further than 11 weeks. Let's go all the way back to when your mother and your father got together to conceive you. Have you guys had this talk before? 
I see some young people in here, so I'll try and be discreet. I also see some older people in here, so I'll try and be discreet as well, just in case you've forgotten how this works, okay? When your mother and your father got together to conceive you, your mother unconsciously perfumed her egg to attract your father, and then your father sent the entire population of the United States. 300 million soldiers toward your mother's egg. And then there was a race. And you won. That's right. Don't let anyone ever tell you you're not special. You beat out 300 million others. You have blown away anything Michael Phelps has done. Now, seeing some of you limp in here earlier makes it hard for me to believe you were the fastest soldier in the gene pool. But you were. Now, your soldier was 20 to 30 times smaller than a grain of salt. Yet it contained half of the 3.5 billion letter genome that makes you you. Your DNA, all the letters in the right order. And your mother's egg was about the size of a period at the end of a sentence in an average book, and it contained the other half of the 3.5 billion letter genome, your DNA, that makes you you. All the letters in the right order. And when your soldier and your egg came together, a new 100% genetic human being was created. Do you realize you have not received any more genetic information from this point till right now? Your genetic information has just duplicated itself. In fact, there were only four things separating you from adulthood. Time, air, water, and food. Those are the same four things that separate a two-year-old from adulthood. Does this have implications on the abortion issue? Yeah, I think it does. We don't kill the two-year-old. Why do we kill the unborn child in the womb? Genetically, <laughs> genetically, it's the same. You say, Frank, you can't legislate morality. All right, no extra charge for this. But this comes from our first book we wrote called, creatively titled, Legislating Morality. <laughs> All laws legislate morality. Every law declares one behavior right and the opposite behavior wrong. You can't think of a law that doesn't legislate morality. The only question is, whose morality will we legislate? In fact, when people say to me, Frank, don't impose your morality on me, I say, why not? Would that be immoral? See, because you're imposing your morality on me right now. You're telling me I ought not impose ought nots, and yet you're imposing that ought not on me. Actually, there's a better answer for this. If somebody says, don't impose your morality on me, I say, this isn't my morality. I didn't make this stuff up. I didn't make up the fact that murder's wrong, that abortion's wrong, that rape is wrong, that theft is wrong, that men were made for women and women were made for men, and the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society. You wouldn't think you, people would have to clap for that, right? That men were made for women and women were made for men and the best way to perpetuate and stabilize society, which is the reason the government's involved in marriage to begin with, is to legally recognize that man-woman relationship over every other relationship. I didn't make any of this stuff up. This isn't my morality. This isn't your morality. This just happens to be the morality. The one Thomas Jefferson said was self-evident. The one the Apostle Paul said, the Gentiles are not of the law of the law written on their hearts. 
Everybody already knows this morality, but some people just don't like it. So if you have a problem with the morality, you don't have a problem with me. I didn't make it up. You have a problem with the creator upon whose nature this morality is derived. All right, no extra charge for that. Let's go back to this. From this point till right now, a construction project of astonishing complexity began taking place. Cells began multiplying at a rate of 4,000 cells per second. Brain cells began multiplying at a rate of 100,000 cells per second. For most of you, anyway. <laughs> some, some cells became brain cells, others lung cells, others heart cells. Some cells went so far across you to become what they needed to become that it would be equivalent to you today walking across the United States alone. And that construction project continues to this very moment. You just made 4 million new red blood cells. You just made another 4 million <laughs> new red blood cells. You just made another 4 million. Knock it off! How is this happening? Are you thinking about this? You're going, wait a minute, Frank, time out. I got to concentrate. New red blood cells coming up. No. How is it just happening? How is it happening? Aristotle recognized something about 2,400 years ago. He didn't know anything about blood cells, obviously. But he noticed that all of nature's going in a direction. In fact, think about it this way. Why does an egg corn, if it's properly nourished, always go in the direction of becoming an oak tree? Why doesn't it become an elm tree, or a birch tree, or a seahorse? You say, well, it's programmed to become an oak tree. Well, who programmed it? And by the way, is an acorn conscious? Is an acorn in the ground going, all right, what do I have to do to become an oak tree? No, yet it reliably goes in the direction of becoming an oak tree. If it doesn't have a mind of its own, yet it's reliably going in a direction, there must be an external mind directing it toward an end. This is what Aristotle called the unmoved mover. Thomas Aquinas came along in the 1200s AD and said, this is going to be my fifth way to argue for God, that all of nature's going in a direction. If it's going in a direction, there must be a director. He noticed that all of nature is orderly and precise and going in a direction. Why is that? because there's an orderer. And Aristotle mistakenly thought that the universe was eternal, but this argument had nothing to do with a Big Bang cause way back when. Aristotle and Aquinas were saying, this requires a cause every single second of existence, because every single second of existence, nature's going in a direction. If it's going in a direction, there must be a director. The Apostle Paul came along and said, in Christ, we live and move and have our being. And Christ holds all things together. And the writer of Hebrews said, God sustains all things by his powerful word. In other words, God just doesn't create the universe way back when and then he leaves it. God creates the universe and the natural laws that operate it and he maintains all those natural laws every single second of existence. And he created you and maintains you every single second of existence. In fact, God is to the universe what a band is to music. If a band were up here playing music, the band would be creating and sustaining the music, right? 
What would happen to the music the second the band stopped playing? Music's over. Same thing is true with God. He creates the universe, the natural laws that govern it, and he creates you, and he sustains all that every single second. So even if the universe was eternal, as Aristotle mistakenly thought, you would still need a being like God. In fact, this is the only reason we can do science, ladies and gentlemen, is because nature's orderly. Things happen over and over again in a repeatable way. If they didn't, there would be no way we could do cause and effect, which is what science is all about. How do you find a particular effect or a particular cause for a particular effect? That's what you're trying to do. Science presupposes a being like God. And that's what we discuss in the book, Stealing from God, if you want to go further. All right, we could talk more about this, but we got to move on to our final argument for God. We talked about the cosmological argument, the teleological argument. Now let's talk about the moral argument. Okay, question, ladies and gentlemen. How do you know that your quarterback throwing a touchdown is better than your quarterback throwing a pick six? An interception where the other team takes it back and scores. How do you know that? This is the interactive portion of the program. How do you know that? It's not just the rules. Goal, getting close. There's a purpose to the game, right? If there was no purpose to the game, you couldn't say that a touchdown was better than a pick six. But since you know the purpose of the game is to score more points than the other team, you know that a touchdown is better than the pick six. Without purpose, you can't see if you've got a good play or a bad play. Same thing is true in life, ladies and gentlemen. If there's no purpose to life, you can't say there's a right way to live it or a wrong way to live it, because without purpose, there's no way to judge whether you're getting closer to the purpose or further away. If God doesn't exist, there's no objective purpose to life. There's no way of knowing that murdering people is bad and loving them is good because there's no purpose. Also, notice in football that the purpose of the game comes from outside the game. In other words, when all the players are on the field right now, when they show up on the field to play, they don't make up the rules when they get to, they don't, know, they don't make up the purpose when they get to the stadium. That's already been established. The commissioner and the owners have, have figured all that out before the players ever get there. Now, in football, the rules are arbitrary, right? They could be different. But in life, the rules aren't arbitrary. The rules come from God's nature because there's a right way to live life and a wrong way to live life because the purpose of life is to know God and to make him known. And there are some things that will take you closer to that purpose and some things that will take you further away. So without God, there's no way to, to have any good or bad. And in fact, if God does not exist, if there is no God, the Nazis were not wrong. In fact, years ago, I had a debate with David Silverman. At the time, he was the president of the American Atheists, and he was a Jewish atheist. And I kept asking him, if there's no God, why is the Holocaust wrong? And he finally admitted, it, it, by his worldview, it wasn't wrong. I said, look, David, if your worldview is telling you that murdering six million people isn't wrong, you have the wrong worldview. Okay, give up your wrong worldview. Don't give up your intuition that murdering six million people is wrong. You already know that's wrong. 
In fact, how did we convict the Nazis at Nuremberg? What did we do? They said, hey, we're just following orders. We're following the orders of our government. And we said, there's a standard beyond your government. It's called international law. In fact, uh, Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence called it nature's law. C.S. Lewis called it the moral law. God's nature is beyond all governments. And if you violate God's nature, despite what your government says, you're guilty. That's how we could convict the Nazis. You had a duty to disobey immoral orders and you didn't do it. You carried them out. If there is no God, love is no better than rape. Oh, you may like love better, but it's not objectively better. In fact, if evolution is true and there is no God, why not rape to get what you want? Why not rape to propagate your, your genes? If that's the goal of life, survival, what would be wrong with that? You see, atheists have to steal a standard from God to get their system to work. Even Richard Dawkins, the famous atheist, said, I'm not Darwinian in my morality. Well, sorry, Richard. If there is no God, there is no right or wrong morality. Nothing wrong with survival of the fittest. The strong gets to overpower and take what the weak has. If there is no God, there are no human rights. In our country right now, everyone's arguing for certain rights. Do you realize if there's no God, there's no right to anything? You got people out there arguing for, say, same-sex marriage. Do you realize if God doesn't exist, there's not only no right to same-sex marriage, there's no right to natural marriage? You got people arguing for a right to abortion. Do you realize if God doesn't exist, there's not only no right to an abortion, there's no right to life? There's no rights to anything if there's no God. It's just your opinion. Yet again, what atheists do is they claim rights while claiming there's no right giver. If there's no God, nobody has a right to anything. Everything is a matter of opinion. And everyone in our hearts, we know that's not the case. God does exist, and there's no right to same-sex marriage. There's a right to natural marriage. God does exist. There's no right to killing your children. There is a right to life. If there is no God, slavery and racism aren't wrong. That's just your opinion. And obviously, we know they are wrong. Why? Because God does exist, and he's made you and everybody else in his image, and it would be wrong to enslave people or treat them poorly because of their race. And by the way, there's only one race, the human race. If there is no God, tolerance is no better than intolerance. By the way, are Christians commanded to be tolerant? No. Tolerance is too weak. Tolerance says, hold your nose and put up with them. Love says, reach out and help them. In fact, in order to love people, sometimes you can't tolerate what they do. Because if you do, you're unloving. In fact, every parent in here, how many people in here are parents? All right, how many people in here are former children? Okay, good. This is for everyone then, right? If your parent tolerates everything you want to do as a child, are they loving or unloving? They're unloving, right? Parents, if you don't stand in the way of evil, you're unloving. You have to tell the kid no. If you don't tell the kid no, you're unloving. You need to protect that child from evil. In our culture, people think love requires approval. No, love does not require approval. Love requires sometimes to say, no, don't do this. I love you so much, I'm going to stand in the way of what you want to do. 
Thomas Sowell. You guys know who Thomas Sowell is? 91 years old, grew up in Harlem, and a brilliant mind, economic mind. He said this. He said, when you tell someone what they need to hear, you're helping them. When you tell someone what they want to hear, you're helping yourself. You know why we don't tell people what they're doing is wrong? Because we don't want them to get mad at us. So we are sacrificing them to save ourselves. We need to tell people in as loving way as possible that what they're doing is wrong if it really is. And if they get mad at us, so oh well. That's on them, not on you. If you're going to love people, you got to draw lines in the sand for their benefit. If you don't, you're just enabling them. So we're not commanded to be tolerant. We're commanded to be loving. Also, if there is no God, you can't complain about the problem of evil. And atheists are always saying, well, there can't be a good God because there's too much evil in the world. In fact, C.S. Lewis was brilliant on this. C.S. Lewis, early on in his life, was in World War I, a terrible war. And right after World War I, he said, there can't be a good God because there's too much evil in the world. There's too much injustice in the world. And then one day he had an epiphany and he realized his argument didn't work. And he put it in the book, Mere Christianity. Here's what he said. He said, as an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust. But how would I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? You see, something can't be unjust unless something is just. Something can't be not right unless something is. Something can't be immoral unless something is. So if you're going to say something's unjust, you're assuming you know what justice is. But what is justice if there is no God? Just your opinion? No. You see, evil does not disprove God. Why? Because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. You say, how does that work? Because evil doesn't exist on its own. Evil only exists as a lack or a privation in a good thing. Evil is like cancer. If you take all the cancer out of a good body, you've got a better body, right? What happens if you take all the body out of the cancer? You've got nothing. It doesn't exist. Evil is like rust in a car. If you take all the rust out of a car, you've got a better car. What happens if you take all the car out of the rust? It doesn't exist. A totally moth-eaten garment is a hanger, right? It doesn't exist. In other words, evil is a parasite in good. It can only exist in good. So if evil exists, then good exists. But if good exists, God has to exist. Otherwise, it's all just a matter of opinion. You see how this works? In other words, we could say it this way. The shadows prove the sunshine. In order to have shadows, you have to have sunshine, right? In other words, in order to have evil, you have to have good. Oh, you can have sunshine without shadows. You can have good without evil, but you can't have shadows without sunshine. You can't have evil without good. So if evil exists, and we all know it exists, then God exists. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it's true. Now, we can ask the question, why does God allow certain evils? Maybe we'll do that, we'll do that during the Q&A. But we can't say it disproves God. Evil doesn't disprove God. It may prove there's a devil out there, but it doesn't disprove God because there'd be no such thing as evil unless there was good, and there'd be no such thing as good unless God existed. Make sense? All right. 
Now, one other word we got to talk about. What does it mean to submit? Nobody likes this word. Nobody wants to submit. Well, let's break the word up. Submission. What does mission mean? Purpose or goal, right? You've got a goal. Sub means you're putting yourself behind that goal, under that goal. Look, if I'm a diva receiver on a team and I go, coach, keep throwing me the ball. You got to keep throwing me the ball. And the coach goes, look, if we keep throwing you the ball, we're not going to win. We got to spread the ball around. You'll get some, but we got to spread the ball around. We're going to win if we do that. If we keep feeding you the ball, we're going to lose. And I go, you know, coach, you're right. I'm going to submit my own desires to the goals of the team. If I do that, is that a good thing? Yeah, of course it's a good thing, right? Look, ladies and gentlemen, if Christianity is true, and it is, we would be foolish not to submit our own wills to his will. We would be foolish to pursue our own little missions that have no eternal impact rather than pursue his ultimate mission that will have eternal impact. Submission is a good thing because if you don't submit, you're going to go in the wrong direction. And that has eternal consequences. So, what can we conclude from these three arguments? From these three arguments, we can conclude that there is a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent, moral creator who created all things and sustains all things to this very minute and we haven't even opened the Bible yet. This is called natural theology. You don't need the Bible to know that God exists. The only question is, is this the Christian God or is this someone else? For that, we're going to go to miracles, but before we do, you're probably thinking, oh, Frank, atheists, they have answers to all this. Not good ones. In fact, I can't see anything better than C.S. Lewis, so I'm just going to tell you what C.S. Lewis said about this. C.S. Lewis points out that if atheism is true, our ability to reason is impossible. So you shouldn't even have arguments against God if God doesn't exist. You say, how can that be? Look what Lewis says. It's a two-slide quote. You ready? Here you go. Here's what he said. Suppose there were no intelligence behind the universe... In that case, nobody designed my brain for the purpose of thinking. Thought is merely the byproduct of some atoms within my skull. But if so, how can I trust my own thinking to be true? You with him so far? He says, but if I can't trust my own thinking, of course I can't trust the arguments leading to atheism and therefore have no reason to be an atheist or anything else. Unless I believe in God, I can't believe in thought, so I can never use thought to disbelieve in God. Boom. That's all you can say. Why? Look, because if the atheists are right, and we're just molecular machines, we're just moist robots, why should we believe anything we think, including any argument leading to atheism? We shouldn't. The very reason we can think, or the very fact that we can think, should cause us to say, there has to be a source of our ability to think. What is that? A great mind. If we have a mind, there must be a great mind in whose image our minds are made. That's the whole point. Now, how do we know that this is the Christian God? 
and not just say another theistic God, like Allah? Well, for that, we've got to go to the third question. Are miracles possible? And we'll be able to discover who the true God is. Why? Well, let's go back, say, a thousand years. If one king in a particular part of uh, Europe wanted to communicate with another king in another jurisdiction, how could he do it? What would he send? He would send a message, right? And there would be a seal on that message, right? And that seal would say, hey, this came from the first king. In other words, the only way the recipient could know that this message came from the king and not somebody else would be to have the seal of the king on it. Now, it seemed to me that that seal would have to have a couple of characteristics. Number one, it would have to be unique to the king because if everyone had the seal, you wouldn't know it really came from the king. And number two, it would have to be difficult to forge, right? Because if you could make your own seal, you could send false messages from the king. Well, it seems that this is what miracles do in the Bible. They're like seals from the ultimate king. It's a message. A miracle is a message that confirms or that confirms the message. The miracle confirms the message. The sign confirms the sermon. In fact, this is what the Bible actually teaches. Why are there miracles in the Bible? Because the miracle confirms the message. The sign confirms the sermon. Now, how many miracles are there in the Bible, approximately? Anyone? What do you think? A lot. Good answer. Yeah, no. There's about 250 miracles, depending upon how you count them. Some of them are bunched up, okay? But let's just make the math easy. Let's take miracles from, say, Abraham to Jesus. That's about 2,000 years, all right? I know there's miracles outside of that window, but most of them are in that time frame, right? Abraham to Jesus. If you have 250 miracles over 2,000 years, how often do you get a miracle? Any math majors in here? Any homeschool students? How often? Say, how often you get a miracle? No. One every eight years. There's a true homeschooler over here somewhere. Right? 250 into 2,000 is you get one miracle every eight years. Is that a lot? No. But do they, do they happen that way? Do you get a miracle and eight years later you get another one? And then eight years later you get another one? No, if you notice it in the Bible, when God is doing miracles through people, he's doing them in three basic areas or time frames around Moses, Elijah, and Elijah, and Jesus and the apostles. Why? Because these people have new revelation that needs new confirmation. I mean, why is Moses, or why is Pharaoh going to listen to, uh, to Moses? Because Moses can do miracles. Why is anyone going to listen to Elijah or Elijah? Because they can do miracles. They have new revelation that needs new confirmation. Same thing is true with Jesus and the apostles. Without them having miracles, we wouldn't be able to know if they're truly speaking for God. So although we think miracles are happening all the time in the Bible, that's just not true. In fact, there are periods of hundreds of years there's no miracles. Why? Because there's no new revelation. Now, I'm not saying that miracles can't occur today. They can. In fact, Craig Keener has written a hernia-inducing two-volume set on miracles. It's 1,100 pages. These are modern-day miracles. 
okay? But you don't need any modern-day miracles to show that Christianity is true. In fact, if miracles ended with Jesus and the apostles, Christianity would still be true if, in fact, Jesus rose from the dead. Here's the problem. A lot of people think miracles are impossible. Like, for example, Noah. Can you really believe in Noah and the ark? Christians. Can we just keep this to ourselves? Can we all admit right now that Noah and the ark is crazy? Thank you. How about resurrections? How many people in here have ever seen somebody rise from the dead? You did? No, just stretching. None of us. <laughs> I thought you saw two of them. None of us have seen anybody rise from the dead, and yet our entire worldview is built upon believing something that none of us have ever seen. How rational is that? And for some reason, the big problem miracle in the Bible is Jonah. Is that a whale of a tail or a tail of a whale? I know Pastor Mike's preaching through this right now. Can you really believe in Jonah? Now, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? No, the, the resurrection is easy compared to the greatest miracle. Yes, the greatest miracle in the Bible is... I got some of you a second time. Yes. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In fact, Pastor Mike just said that in his last sermon on Jonah, right? If Genesis 1-1 is true, every other verse is at least possible. And the interesting thing is, is that atheists are admitting the data for the first verse. They're admitting space, time, and matter had a beginning. Now, they don't think it's God, obviously, but as we already talked about, what else could it be? Space, time, and matter had a beginning out of nothing. If God can create the universe out of nothing, can he raise Jesus from the dead? Can he resurrect Jonah in a great fish? And spit him out on land? Can he do the Noah miracle? I mean, of course Noah's crazy, unless God exists, right? Now, there's a lot of people who say, I, I can't believe in a miracle because I've never seen one. That's not a good reason to disbelieve something necessarily. Why? Because you believe in a lot of things you've never seen, right? You've never seen your mind. You believe in it, you're using it right now. You've never seen the laws of logic or the laws of mathematics, right? You've never seen justice. Oh, oh, no, you're sure you've seen justice, right? You've seen, no, you may have seen justice done or not done, but you've never seen justice because it's not a physical thing. It's an immaterial reality grounded in the nature of God. You've never seen love. Everyone in here believes in love, but you've never seen it. Oh, you may have been loved. You may have loved somebody. You've never seen it. In fact, uh, in, um, a number of years ago, I had a couple of debates with the atheist Christopher Hitchens. You guys remember Christopher Hitchens? He was a brilliant British atheist who sounded more brilliant than he was because he had a British accent. Remember him? <laughs> and uh, one time at the College of New Jersey, we had a, a student from the audience asked Christopher this question. Christopher, what is love? 
Now, Christopher, being a materialist, had to come up with a materialistic answer. So after a lot of hemming and hawing, he finally said, love is a chemical. And I said, don't tell that to your wife. <laughs> Honey, do you love me? Yeah. Why? Because I got the chemical. <laughs> right? I might not have the chemical tomorrow, but right now I got it. So let's go. No. Love isn't a chemical. Love, again, is an immaterial virtue grounded in the nature of God. You've never seen it, but you believe in it. You've never seen gravity or a cell phone that rings when it shouldn't, right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> sure, Frank, we've seen gravity. Look, there it is right there. No, you're not seeing gravity. What are you seeing? You're seeing the effects of gravity. You know, we really don't even know what gravity is. You're seeing the effects of gravity. That's how you know God exists. If someone ever asks you, how do you know God exists? Here's what you should say. I know God by his effects, right? There's a creation. That's the effect. The cause must be a creator. We're reasoning from effect to cause. This is what scientists do. They see an effect, they try and figure out what the cause is, right? There's design in the universe and design in you. That's the effect. The cause must be a designer. There's a moral law written on your heart. You know certain things are right and other things are wrong. That's the effect. You're reasoning back to a moral law giver. You have the capacity to know things outside of your skull. You have the ability to reason. That's an effect. You should reason back to a cause, a source of reason, a transcendent mind upon whom the laws of logic are grounded and your minds are made. You're reasoning from effect to cause. You've never seen George Washington, yet you believe in him. Why? Because he's left effects behind that are best explained by a cause known as George Washington. Same thing is true with Jesus. He's left effects behind that are best explained by Jesus of Nazareth. That's not even talking about the Holy Spirit. That's just looking at the evidence that we have left over other than the Holy Spirit. We're reasoning from effect to cause. Now, if miracles do occur, even now, we shouldn't expect to see many of them. Why? Because if miracles occurred all the time, they wouldn't get our attention as special acts of God. I mean, if people rose from the dead routinely, what would the resurrection of Christ mean to us? Nothing. You go to somebody and you go, Jesus rose from the dead to prove he was God. And the guy goes, so what? Uncle Leroy just rose from the dead two weeks ago. Now I got to give the inheritance back, right? No, if people were rising from the dead all the time, the resurrection would mean nothing. This has to be an extremely rare event in order to get our attention. And the only way you can recognize these rare events is against the backdrop of repeated natural events. Without the universe doing what it does routinely, you would never be able to recognize a miracle. Miracles have to be rare to get our attention. Now, there are things that happen every day that we don't call miracles because they happen every day, but we should call them miracles. We know God must be behind them. Like, how many people in here have ever seen your own flesh and blood come out of another person? Or come out of you, moms? Now, when you see your own flesh and blood come out of another person, you don't go, 
evolution, right? <laughs> you go, this is amazing. How does this happen? We started with a soldier and an egg. There is design behind all this. So, to conclude this little section on miracles, do you know if you're an atheist, do you know what you have to conclude? That every single spiritual experience and miracle claim in the history of the world has to be false. Is that possible? It's possible. Is it reasonable? No. You have to have a lot of faith to be an atheist, to believe that every single person has been deceived who's ever had a spiritual experience, to believe that every single miracle claim in the history of the world has been false. So miracles can be used to confirm a message from God. The only question we have now is, is the New Testament true when it comes to the greatest miracle in the New Testament, the one that confirms Christianity, and that is the resurrection of Jesus. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Now, I'm going to give you six, uh, eight lines of evidence, actually, that Jesus, the New Testament writers are telling the truth. We don't have time to go through all of them. They're all in the books. We only have time to look at a couple of them, but I'm going to list the eight of them, just so you have them, okay? They all begin with the letter E to help you remember them. The first is we have early sources. The New Testament is written early, and the evidence that's written in the New Testament is even earlier, like an early creed that was memorized. The earliest evidence for the resurrection in the entire Bible is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. You can write that down if you're taking notes. Go look at it. It's a creed that even atheist scholars goes all the way back to the crucifixion itself. All right, and that's really the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. It says who Jesus appeared to after he rose from the dead. There's eyewitness details throughout the, out the uh, New Testament documents. There's scores of them. And in fact, they're all listed in chapter 10 of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. There's embarrassing stories. I'll explain that in a minute because we're going to look at that one as well as excruciating deaths. There's also embedded confirmation this one is hard to explain in a short period of time, but this is probably the best evidence you've never heard of that the New Testament writers are independently witnessing the same historical events and they couldn't have invented this. And the easiest way to discover more about this, you could get the Stealing from God book or you could Google two words. Here are the two words you should Google. Undesigned coincidences. Undesigned coincidences. These have been discovered in the past 150, 200 years. And uh, when you read them, you're going to go, yeah, there's no way they could make this up. Okay, I call it embedded confirmation. But undesigned coincidences is how they're normally referred to. Also, there's expected predictions. That has to deal with Old Testament prophecy. And if I had only one Old Testament prophecy to make my case on, it would be Isaiah chapter 53. Okay, if you go read Isaiah chapter 53, you're going to see an uncanny description of Jesus written 700 years in advance. There's other passages, of course, as well. Number seven is extra-biblical writers. These are people that lived within 150 years of Jesus' life. Household names like Josephus, Suetonius, Thallus, Phlegon, and others. You probably read about them in your devotions this morning, right? These are people that have brief references to Jesus and the apostles. They're not eyewitnesses, but... 
They are talking about Jesus and the apostles, and when you add up their references, you get a story congruent with the New Testament. They don't say they think Jesus rose from the dead. What they say is his disciples believed he rose from the dead, and his disciples were willing to die for their beliefs, which is pretty good evidence, right? Finally, the explosive growth of the church out of Jerusalem. It's really hard to explain how Christianity could come out of Judaism in Jerusalem in the first century when both the Jews and the Romans didn't want it to succeed and they could have easily stopped it by doing one thing. What could they have done? Easy. Take the body out of the tomb, right? If they had just had Jesus' body, they could say, stop all this nonsense, talk about the resurrection, he's dead, here's his body. They couldn't do that, why? Because Jesus was still using his body, right? He had resurrected. How does, how does, how does a, a religion come out of Judaism in the first century in Jerusalem when it could have been squashed by simply finding the dead body? And they wanted, they wanted it squashed, didn't they? They couldn't do it. All right, now, as I say, we don't have time to cover all these. Let's just cover a couple of them. And you need to look at all of them to get the complete case. And none of these alone do the job. But this one, embarrassing stories for me, really clinches it for me because I'm naturally skeptical. But when you look at embarrassing stories, embarrassing stories tell the historian, if there's something embarrassing to the author or authors, it's probably true. Why is it probably true? Because you're not going to invent details that embarrass you. You might invent details that make you look good, but you won't make details that make you look bad, right? So that's why we call this the duff factor. They're not making this up. In fact, let me ask you guys a question. How many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look good? If you don't have your hand up right now, you're lying to make yourself look good. And it's not working. We know you're lying. All right, how many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look bad? Now, you don't lie to make yourself look bad. You might lie to make yourself look good. Well, the New Testament writers have filled the New Testament. By the way, the Old Testament writers have filled the Old Testament with the same kind of things, but we're looking just at the New Testament right now. The New Testament writers have filled the New Testament with embarrassing details and stories they never would have invented. Let me just give you a few of them. For example, Peter, their leader, is called Satan by Jesus. That's embarrassing, isn't it? Now, Mark, who wrote this down, do you think Mark made this up? Do you think Mark at one point said to Peter, hey, Pete, I'm going to make this a real interesting story. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. <laughs> what, what do you think Peter would have said? Have him call you Satan. <laughs> Look, I'm the leader here. And then Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. What does he wind up doing? He denies him three times. And at the crucifixion, all the disciples, maybe with the possible exception of John, they all run away. This is like a Monty Python movie. Run away! They all run away. And who are the brave ones? The women. The women are the brave ones. That's right. Yes, I am woman, hear me roar. That's right. Now, who wrote the New Testament down? Men. Now, what man? is going to invent that he was hiding for fear of the Jews why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb. Would any man here invent that? I mean, if I was there and invented it, I would make myself look good, wouldn't you? 
I mean, I'd write down something like this. We marched right down there and we overpowered that elite Roman guard. John said, get out. <laughs> Peter roundhouse kicked him. Thomas said, we'll be back. And then on Sunday morning, we marched right down to the tomb and we saw Jesus who congratulated us on our great faith. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. I would never say it was Mr. Sissy Pants why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb. And oh, by the way, why would you never say the women were the first witnesses in that culture? Forget about the fact it was embarrassing to men. It was. But why would you never say that if you're trying to pass off a lie as the truth? Because a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up this story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses. Yet all four gospels say the women were the first witnesses, which is telling us what? They really were. In fact, one of them was a formerly demon-possessed woman. Oh, what a great witness. Why would they do this? I actually had a lady come up to me once, and she said, Frank, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. I said, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. Because ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? It could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not going to tell you. You'll see it on the news before you hear it from him. You'll be watching the news going, hey, hot what? Oh, yeah, forgot to tell you the nuke blew up. I've been hot for three days. What's for dinner? He's not going to tell you. I can't even believe this next verse is in the Bible, but it is. You know the end of the Gospel of Matthew where Jesus gets all his disciples together and he's given them the Great Commission? Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he doesn't say make believers. Right? There's a difference. Anyway, as he's giving them the Great Commission, it says right there in the text, verse 17, while they're there, it says, some believed, but some doubted. He's standing resurrected right in front of them and they're doubting. It's like they're going, you see that guy over there? Yeah. That guy over there is Jesus. Oh, no, it can't be Jesus. He was just killed not long ago. No, I'm telling you, it's him. <laughs> Jesus is dead. The Romans killed him. It's him. They put a spear in his side. Blood and water came out. They crucified him. He's dead. It's him. It can't be. It is. How do you know? <laughs> the women told me. They're not making this up. There's even potentially embarrassing details about Jesus in there. Jesus is considered out of his mind by his own family who come to seize him and take him home. This is in Mark chapter 3. His own family thinks he's nuts. They may have heard the scholars say, oh, the New Testament writers embellish Jesus to be God. Oh, really? Then why is Mark chapter 3 in there? which is almost universally recognized to be the earliest gospel. His own family thinks he's crazy. His own brothers don't believe in him. John chapter 7, verse 5, his own brothers don't believe. That's embarrassing to not have your brothers believe in you. 
We learn later, however, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called? And once again, it's sharp, sharp tonight still. <laughs> he later dies as a martyr in the city of Jerusalem. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin throw him off the Temple Mount in 62 AD, and then they stone him to death. Who tells us this? It's not even in any New Testament document. You know who tells us this? Josephus, the Jewish historian who lived from 37 A.D. to about 100 A.D. He was probably in Jerusalem at the time. He tells us this in Hegesippus, another writer who lived later. They say James, James is stoned to death. Now, he didn't believe his own brother was God when Jesus walked the earth before the resurrection. But after the resurrection, he's dying as a martyr. You say, why? Go back to that creed I mentioned earlier, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 8. One of the people that Jesus appears to resurrected is James, his own brother. That must have convinced him that his own brother was God, right? Before the resurrection, James didn't think his own brother was God. After the resurrection, he said, yo, bro, you're God, <laughs> all right? Now, how many people in here have a brother? All right, how many people have a brother who thinks he's God? Yeah, yeah. You don't believe in him either, do you? Neither did James until the resurrection. Jesus is called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. You think they put that in there? They made that up? He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. And oh, by the way, notice there are two prostitutes in Jesus' bloodline. The Messiah's bloodline. Who are they? Rahab and Tamar. Now, do you think when Matthew and Luke did the genealogies, they said to one another, you know what, I really think we ought to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. What do you say? Rahab, Tamar, no. In fact, there's a lot of shaky people in the bloodline. Judah, from where we get the term Jew from, true, not a good guy. Read about him in Genesis. David, David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but he's a liar, adulterer, and a murderer. Gee, I guess there's hope for the rest of us then, huh? Bathsheba's in there. Do you know that when, I think it's Matthew, when Matthew gets to Bathsheba in the genealogy, he won't even mention her name. You know what he says instead? Uriah's wife. Ooh. <laughs> Who's that? Uriah was the husband of Bathsheba whom David had killed so he could have Bathsheba. I mean, Matthew's telling the truth, but it's kind of a slam. Uriah's wife. In fact, you don't find this in other genealogies. You don't, you know, the Pharaoh. Is the Pharaoh going to let his historian put prostitutes in his bloodline and reveal all sorts of embarrassing things? No. The ultimate no-spin zone is the New Testament. They're not making this up as embarrassing as it is. Now, there's much more in the books, but we got to move on. We have one more that we have to do, and that is excruciating deaths. These men who were in a position to know whether Jesus had resurrected from the dead died excruciating deaths when they could have saved themselves by saying it never happened. Now, this is critically important to get this point. Do you realize that all the writers of the New Testament, with the exception of Luke, all of them were all Old Testament believing Jews. They thought they were God's chosen people. And we need to keep that in mind when we look at this next little chart here. 
Because look what happened to them virtually overnight. The apostles' beliefs and practices before and after the resurrection. Before the resurrection, they believed in animal sacrifice. They've been slaying lambs and other animals to Yahweh for hundreds of years. Jesus shows up and they go, Christ's sacrifice is sufficient. We don't need to slay all these lambs because these lambs are just symbols of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here is the real Lamb. Before, they believed in a binding law of Moses. Afterwards, they say Christ's life fulfills the binding law of Moses. Before, they believed in strict monotheism. Afterwards, they believe in a trinity, three persons in one divine essence. Yes, I know the trinity is hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's much clearer in the New. Before, they believed in the Sabbath. In fact, they thought they could be stoned for not obeying the Sabbath. Afterwards... They believe in Sunday worship. In fact, Paul even says in Galatians chapter 2, don't let anyone tell you you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day. You know, out of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. There's only one that isn't. Keep holy the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath has arrived. Who is that? Jesus is the Sabbath. Our rest is in him. We don't work. He's done all the work already. Before... They believed in a conquering Messiah, afterwards a sacrificial Messiah. Before they believed in circumcision, afterwards they believed in baptism and communion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what would cause these pious Jews who thought they were God's chosen people to abandon everything on the left and adopt everything on the right virtually overnight at great personal cost to themselves? The only thing I can think of is what psychologists call an impact event. What's an impact event? An impact event is an event that occurs in your life that is so dramatic, so impactful, that it can cause you to change your perspective 180 degrees overnight. Some impact events are so dramatic, although you might not remember what you had for breakfast this morning, you'll remember an impact event that had happened 30, 40, 50, maybe even 60 years ago if you're old enough. In fact, only a few of you in this room will be able to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you can remember where you were and what you were doing, November 22nd, 1963, raise your hand. Put it up high. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you see these people with their hands up? These people are very old. November 22nd, 1963 is my earliest memory. I was two years old in two days. Yes, yes, I just turned 60. I know, I know, but I don't look a day over 59. In fact, when I turned 50, my wife was very encouraging. She said, honey, you're going to live to be 100. I said, how do you know? She said, because you look half dead already. <laughs> anyway, I'm two years old in two days. I'm standing in the living room in our home in Wanamassa, New Jersey, and my mom, who's sitting right over here right now, hi, Mom. My mom was sitting on an ottoman in front of a black and white TV, weeping uncontrollably. What's the matter? What's the matter, Mom? They killed the president. They killed the president. President Kennedy assassinated that day. That's my earliest memory. I can still see my mom right now when she was 26 years old. Next month, she's going to be... <laughs> 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 I 
Next, now you can say next month she's 84. There she is, right there. But that's my earliest memory. I was two years old in two days. I don't remember anything before that and very little after that. Where were you when the second plane hit the tower? You remember, don't you? I was on the phone in my office in my home in uh, near Charlotte, North Carolina. I had the TV on behind me. I had seen that one of the towers had been hit. I didn't know by what, maybe a Cessna or something. And I was talking to a pastor on the north side of Charlotte, and he was talking, and he, he wanted me to come to his church, and we were trying to figure out what the topic would be. And I said, you got the TV on? He goes, yeah. And as we're talking, suddenly he screams into the phone. He goes, the second tower just got hit. I turned around and look at the TV. The second tower's on fire. I said, was it a Cessna? He goes, no, 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 it was a big plane. It was like a United plane. I said, you saw that? He goes, it was just on live TV. It flew right in there and exploded. And I said, look, look, let me call you back. I hung up the phone. For some reason that morning I had CNN on, the Communist News Network. <laughs> And I'm not making this up, but the commentator on CNN said, one has to think there's some sort of navigational error here. I said, navigational error? You doofus. This is the clearest day in the history of the Big Apple. What do you think, Stevie Wonder's flying these planes? This is terrorism. I called that pastor the next day. I said, we're going to come to your church and talk about Islam because that's what this is related to. Now, 9-11 was over, over 20 years ago now. And everyone who's old enough can remember something about that day. But if I were to ask you where you were 20 days ago, most of you are going to go, I don't know, let me look at my phone. What was I doing that day? Huh? Why can you remember something from 20 years ago but not 20 days ago? No impact event 20 days ago. Impact event 20 years ago. Look, if Jesus really rose from the dead, would that have been an impact event? Would they have remembered everything Jesus said and did till the day they died? Would they have any trouble remembering what happened? No. This is the only way I can figure out why they would have abandoned everything on the left and adopted everything on the right virtually overnight. In fact, you might want to ask yourself a question. What did the New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? What did they have to gain? Remember, by saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead, these people who were believers in Yahweh suddenly got kicked out of the synagogue and then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Last time I checked, that was not a list of perks. Right? We're going to start a new religion. We are? Yeah. What's it going to get us? First, we get kicked out of the synagogue, then beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up! You know? What a great idea. Why haven't we thought of this earlier? In fact, they had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen, not every motive to say it did. You know, I get this question a lot. If you're a Christian, maybe you do too. Are there any non-Christian writers that talk about Jesus and the apostles? Yeah, I mentioned them briefly earlier. They're all in chapter 9 of I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. These people are not eyewitnesses, but they do give us some useful information. But you know what is often underlying that question? An illicit assumption. What's the illicit assumption? You really can't trust the New Testament writers because, you see, these New Testament writers were religious and we know that religious people tend to embellish things. You can only trust the secular people to know what really happened. 
If you think about that for more than 10 seconds, you realize how stupid that is. Why? What did these people have to gain by saying it was true? Nothing. They, got it. they had everything to lose by saying it was true, not everything to gain. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen my friend Jay Warner Wallace, the cold case homicide detective, who has been on Dateline more than, mo than any other cold case detective in America because he solves crimes, cold cases that are decades old. Well, Jim is a Christian, and he took his, his uh, detective skills to investigate the greatest homicide of all time, that, that of Jesus, and you can get his book, Cold Case Christianity. He has another great book out now called Person of Interest, which you'll really like. Anyway, Jim says that whenever he finds a dead body that he knows has been murdered, there's only three reasons why that guy's dead. Not a thousand reasons, only three or a combination of the three. There was either a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue. Sex, money, or power. Those are the three reasons that people will sin to get those things or variations of those things. By the way, that's the, those are the same reasons that we sin, right? Now, sex, money, and power are good things, but they're so good, sometimes we'll take shortcuts to get them. And so when he finds somebody who's dead, he says there's got to be a sex issue, a power issue, or a money issue here, or a combination thereof. He also says, by the way, when he goes to these programs, you're going to have to find one of those motivators to figure out who did it. Now the question is, we're also going to have to find these motivators if we're going to say the story that you read in the New Testament is invented. Why would they make it up? Ladies and gentlemen, let me ask you guys a question. Did the New Testament writers get real popular with the ladies <laughs> for saying Jesus had risen from the dead? No. Did they get money for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? They weren't 21st century prosperity gospel preachers. No. Did they get power for saying Jesus rose from the dead? No, they got the opposite. Paul had power as a Pharisee persecuting Christians. Then he was persecuted because he became a Christian. He became a Christian. No, they didn't get any sex, money, or power. They had no motive to make this up. They had every motive to say it wasn't true, and yet they said it was true anyway. In fact, why would they die for a known lie? You say, wait a minute, Frank, time out. If you're going to say that martyrdom proves Christianity, don't you have to say martyrdom proves Islam? No. Why? There's a lot of differences between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. But let me give you the main difference for our purposes here. The New Testament... Well, let me start with the Muslims first. The Muslim martyrs of today haven't witnessed anything that tell them that Islam is true. They just have faith. But the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times witnessed Jesus rise from the dead. They saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified with their own senses that Jesus had risen from the dead. Many people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament martyrs were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not, and they went to their deaths anyway. You can't get better evidence than that unless you were there yourself. All right, last thing on this. We're going to get to your question shortly. And for those of you in here who believe the Bible's inerrant like I do, this is going to sound like heresy for a minute, but it's not. Pastor Mike, stick with me. Okay. <laughs> get the hook. Get rid of this guy. 
Christianity is not true because a series of documents we put under one binding we call the Bible says it's true. In fact, Christianity would be true if the Bible never existed. You say, how can that be? Do you realize that there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Frank, how could you be a Christian without the book of Romans? Was Paul a Christian before he wrote the book of Romans? Yeah, that's why he wrote the book of Romans, because the risen Jesus had appeared to him. Was John a Christian before he wrote the Gospel of John? Yes, why? Because the risen Jesus appeared to him. So Christianity did not originate with a book. Christianity originated with an event, the resurrection. There would be no books that we call now the New Testament written by Yahweh-believing Jews in the first century unless Jesus rose from the dead. Why would they make this up? They wouldn't. They had every motive to say it didn't happen. In fact, you could put it this way. The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. You would have no New Testament documents written by Jews in the first century unless Jesus rose from the dead. And they wouldn't invent any of this because none of the motivators are there. They didn't get sex, money, or power. They got exactly the opposite. They went to their deaths saying this was true. All right, now, there's more evidence that we don't have time to get into, but let's, let's cover the, all four questions just briefly. Does truth exist? If somebody says there's no truth, you're going to say, is that? Okay, does God exist? We talked about the first argument, the cosmological argument, the argument from the beginning of the universe. Second argument, teleological argument, design of the universe and design in you. Third argument, moral argument. From those three arguments, we get a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created and sustains all things. Are miracles possible? Yes. Miracles are possible. Why? Because God exists in the greatest miracle, which is creation of the universe, has already occurred. And even atheists are admitting the data for that. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. Now, if you keep going through the book, you're going to see the way we arrive at the Bible being the word of God is that Jesus being God taught the Old Testament was the word of God and he promised the New Testament. All right. That's the big picture. All right. Now, again, uh, if you want to go further, actually, let's go over here. If you want to go further, the book and the DVDs are back there. We're now teaching online courses, by the way. In fact, there's a new online course I'll be teaching in January called How to Interpret Your Bible. It's amazing. I've never been to a church. Maybe this one's an exception. I've never been to a church where they ever teach you a course on how to interpret your Bible. It's interesting. That's probably the most important thing we got to get good at, right? So we're going to be doing that online course in January. You can check that out. We're on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. In fact, we're so into YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, we've actually combined these three into one social media platform. We call it You Twit Face. It's kind of a Jersey thing. Have you signed up for You Twit Face yet? Yeah, we're on Instagram, too. In fact, on our YouTube channel, there's well over a thousand short videos from the college campus, short Q&A videos that you can share with other people. So check those out there. 
Also, the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. Check that out. Check out our TV show, which is Wednesday nights, as I mentioned, at 9 p.m. on DirecTV and Roku. And there, text the word evidence to 855-909-0582 if you want to go a lot further and get the uh, entire PowerPoint presentation. And if you don't do anything else, at least download the free app, the Cross-Examined app, two words in the App Store, Cross-Examined. Not only does it have the podcast on there, it has the TV show streaming, it even has our, uh, a quick answer section. So you might be having lunch with somebody, and they say something against Christianity, and you don't know how to answer it. All you need to do is take out your phone and say, hey, hang on, I'm getting a text. <laughs> what about this? <laughs> right? It's right there. You don't have to worry about it. All right? So, it's true. The question is, so what if it's true? So what if Christianity is true? Well, if it's true, that means that somebody actually did die for you. Now, when I was in the Navy, I was in naval aviation, and we had to earn golden wings, which were fairly hard to earn. But there's nothing more difficult in any military to earn than a golden trident. That's what the SEALs earn. Very few people that start SEAL training make it through. Those that do wear that golden trident with pride, it is their identity. When Michael Monsor was buried in Rosecrans Cemetery just outside of San Diego, just about every Navy SEAL on the West Coast showed up for his funeral. And when they passed his casket, they took off their tridents and they pressed them into his casket. They took their identity and put their identity in the one that died for them, their Savior. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to put our identity in our Savior. But our culture says, no, don't do that. Put your identity in your political party or put your identity in your race, or put your identity in your ethnic group, or put your identity in your sexual orientation, or put your identity in your boyfriend, or your girlfriend, or your vocation, or your bank account. You know, none of those things are ultimate, ladies and gentlemen. What happens when all those things go away? Are you still a person? In Christianity, you don't achieve your identity, you receive your identity. This is the only worldview that does this. If you have to achieve your identity, number one, it puts all the pressure on you. And number two, there's always somebody that can do it better. And then what happens when you can't do it anymore? You have no identity? There's an identity crisis in the country, isn't there? The ultimate identity is Jesus. And a biographer of Jesus, we call John, wrote in the very first chapter of the biography, he said that God has given you the right to become a child of God. How do you become a child of God? You accept the free gift of salvation that he's provided you. You don't achieve it, you receive it. It's free, and you can never lose it no matter what you do. What could be better than that? So if you've never received it, you should do so today. And by the way, he didn't just die. He also rose again. 
and he, he can impart his righteousness to you. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take your questions, and we have a mic set up right up here, and Pastor Matt's going to help us with that. So everyone can hear, and everyone online, you have to come on a kind of, easy for me to say, come up to the mic. And so no one likes to ask the first question, so we're going to move right on to the second question. <laughs> second question. And once the first person comes up, everybody will start coming up, so we just need the first person to come up for the Q&A. And you don't have to wait for that person to sit down. You don't have to wait for that person to sit down. You can get behind him so we can keep moving. Yes, sir, what's your name? Uh, uh, Chris Walsh. Chris, go ahead, Chris. How you doing? So, good, good. Thank you for your presentation. Yes, sir. Um, so the big question we get a lot is about the age of the universe, the age of the earth. Um, and they use carbon dating, for example, mm -hmm. uh, to say, well, okay, it can't be a, a new earth. Uh, you know, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So I know they, they kind of base that opinion on uniformity mm -hmm. to say that the universe was always is and, and has mm -hmm. been as this. But how would you explain the radiocarbon dating issue? And, uh, I'm absolutely convinced the universe is at least 60 years old. <laughs> <laughs> all right, it's at least 83. I'll put my mom in there. It's at least 80. You can stay there. Go ahead, stay okay. there. Um, Christians disagree over how old the universe is, right? This is not a test for orthodoxy, whether you think it's old or young. In fact, Pastor Mike and I were just talking about this and, uh, over, over lunch, and I was reading recently that one particular theologian thinks that Genesis 1 was really, or really is, a polemic against the Egyptian creation story. Because remember, who is Genesis 1 written to? It's not written to us. It's written to the people who lived in Moses' time. What happened to them? They had just come out of Egypt. They're not walking through the desert going, I wonder how old this place is, right? I mean, that's not their question, right? What they want to know is who is the true God. And the Egyptians had a creation story where somehow these finite gods already existed and they brought order to chaos. Moses comes along and says, no, 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 no. God is outside of the universe. He created it, and he brings order to chaos just by speaking. There's no fight. There's none of that. He does that. So I think if you look at Genesis 1, which appears to have some poetic elements to it, right? It has six days, and it starts with creation days anyway. It starts with, uh, and God said... And it ends with the same, you know, it is good and all this. And days one and day four are congruent. Day two and day five are congruent. Day three and day six. There's a rhythm to it. It's not Hebrew poetry, but there's poetry in there, right? I don't think this is necessarily a literal historical account where we add up the days and the genealogies and try and figure out how old the universe is. That's not what the text is intended to do. The text is intended to let us who the true God is, who brings order to chaos, all right. Now, if you want to believe it's young, that's a perfectly legitimate uh, interpretation. But I think there's evidence from natural revelation, which we've been talking about, that seems to show the universe is much older. Okay? And there are two revelations. God has written two books. He's written the Bible, but he also has written the book of nature. And you can't understand the Bible without the book of nature. You have to know certain... In fact, think about this, ladies and gentlemen. What does the first verse of the Bible say? It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what that assumes? First of all, that assumes you know what language is. It assumes you know what a beginning is. It assumes you know what God is. It assumes you know cause and effect, right? It assumes all these things. You have to bring that information to the text to understand what the text is. And so, 
While the universe could be old or young, I think the better evidence is it's old, but I don't really care how old it is. Because no matter how far back you go, you're still going to need a creator. Yeah. And you're still going to need a sustainer every single second the universe exists. Yeah. All right? Good. All right, thanks a lot. Thanks. Yes, sir. What's your name? Uh, Ricky. Dr. Frank, it's good to see you again. I was a CIA grad. In, oh, uh, hey, Ricky. In August. How you doing? Yeah, awesome, awesome. Good. Um, uh, my question actually has to do with uh, uh, something I heard William Lane Craig say um, in an interview. I don't think it was recently, but in the past, where he was asked about what happens to people who, who, who never have the opportunity to believe in Jesus. They were mm -hmm. never evangelized. And what he said, he mentioned something where he, he, he called it the inner light of their mm -hmm. morality that they could follow. And if mm -hmm. they follow that inner light, mm -hmm. then that could, be, um, uh, that, could be, have, that could have been their opportunity, per se. Uh, my question for you is, do you, would you agree with that? Or do you maybe think that borderlines on like a soft universalism? Um, what would you say uh, happens to someone who never has the opportunity, someone indigenous, a pygmy somewhere, whatever, okay. um, who never has the opportunity to uh, hear the message of Jesus? Well, for a couple things about this question. First of all, understand that this is a moral question, right? This is somehow saying that God is somehow immoral if he doesn't get his gospel to everyone. When someone says that, I ask, by what standard are you judging that to be immoral if that's in fact what happens here, Okay. Uh, so if it comes from an atheist, I'm going to ask, well, why do you think that's immoral, that God wouldn't get his gospel to everyone, okay? Uh, secondly, uh, this is known as natural revelation, what we just mentioned. Everybody knows there has to be a creator God. The Bible teaches that if you take a step toward that creator, he's going to get you more light so you can be saved. Now, I've heard Bill Craig give this answer before, and I think it's a little different the way than you said it. Maybe he's given different answers. But what Bill has said is that we all know that many people who hear the gospel don't believe it, right? You might have friends and relatives who've heard it. And they, no, they don't believe it. It could be that those who have never heard the gospel wouldn't have believed it anyway, right? That's possible. In fact, if you read Acts chapter 17, when Paul is at Mars Hill in Athens, Greece, and he's addressing non-believers, he says that God has so prearranged events so that People will find him. He's appointed the times and places where people should live. And people will find him and reach out to him, though he's not far from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being. In other words, that passage seems to indicate that God knows, quite obviously, who is going to believe and who isn't. And he may have so prearranged events that the people who do hear the gospel and, and want to hear the gospel will be saved. And those who never hear the gospel wouldn't have believed it even if he did give it to them. Right? That's certainly a possibility. I think the best course of action here is to say this. We know what does save people, the gospel. So what I'm going to do is risk all to get people the gospel. That's what we ought to do. I'll leave everything else in the hands of God. We know that the God of all justice is going to do what's right. Nobody in the afterlife is going to go, I got a raw deal, God. If I just had more information, I would have believed. Right? No. And by the way, you don't go to hell because you don't believe in Jesus. You go to hell because you've sinned. It would be like saying, do I die because I didn't go to the doctor? No, you die because you have a disease. Now, maybe you could prevent dying by going to a doctor, but the reason you're dying is because you have a disease, not because you've gone to the doctor, or not because you haven't gone to the doctor. Just like if you go to the great physician, you might be able to prevent eternal death. You will prevent eternal death if you accept. But the reason you're going to eternal death is not because you haven't accepted Jesus. The reason you're going to eternal death is because you've sinned. All right?
Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. All right, thanks. Yes, sir. Hi, Frank. Hey, take off the mask if you would. Yeah. So, go ahead. I have a question. Uh, hey, I saw you at the post office. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I have a moral question for my daughter. She's in middle school. Okay. So I went one day to pick her up, uh, and she tells me that her teacher was teaching her that about the, the witch trials. So the what? The witch trials. Where, where it says oh, the witch trials. Okay, in the yeah. Old Testament where um, it says, Thou shalt not live, uh, let a witch to live. Mm -hmm. And I want to see your point of view. I kind of um, told her that we're under the new covenant now. Mm -hmm. Kind of explained that, but I wanted to see your point of view on that. Well, I want to know what passage she's talking about. That's the, 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 the problem passage. I'd have to study the passage and see what she means. But there were witch trials back in like the 16 and 1700s, okay? And the reason that there were witch trials is because they thought witches were murderers, that witches could do incantations and murder people. And if that were really true, the witches should have been on trial, right? Because we believe now that a murderer ought to go on trial, right? So we may have had a false belief that these people could actually murder people, but the moral absolute that people who commit murder ought to be tried for that, we still agree on today, okay? So I don't know what passage she might be referring to in the Old Testament, but I would have to see that passage to know how to exegete it and figure out what's going on there. Now, there's a great book out there that will help with these Old Testament passages, and that book is called Is God a Moral Monster by Paul Copan, C-O-P-A-N. In fact, he teaches right down here in Palm Beach Atlantic. And you might want to check that book out, Is God a Moral Monster? The other book is called How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. That's the book that Pastor Mike and I were talking about this afternoon. How Not to Read the Bible by Dan Kimball. It's probably an easier read than Paul's book. But it gets into some of those Old Testament questions. All right, so check those out. Thank you, man. All right, thanks a lot. Yes, sir. What's your name? William. Hey, William. Go ahead, sir. Hi, good evening. Thanks for what you do. Yes, sir. I Thank you. I have a question that a friend of mine asked me, is that how can we justify killing in war? Mm-hmm. Yeah, going to war and killing, going to other countries, how is that justified? Okay. Because the commandment does not say, thou shalt not kill. The commandment says, thou shalt not murder. And there are exceptions uh, where you can actually kill somebody. It's not murder if it's self-defense or it's done in a just war, or it's in capital punishment, and it's done so by a, a, a responsible authority like a government. Those are instances where you can take life, the life of another person, okay? So if you can't commit killing in either self-defense or a just war, then how are you gonna stop evil people from overrunning a peaceful society? You can't. So in any fallen world, some use of force is going to be necessary. So I think when people say, how can you justify killing, uh, they're misunderstanding the commandment. The commandment is not about killing. The commandment is about murder, which is the unjustified taking of an innocent life. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Yes, sir. What's your name? I'm Caleb, sir. Just get, get a little bit closer. I'm Caleb, sir. I just Caleb, I have go ahead. two questions. Yes, sir. First is... Is do you think that the afterlife, such as such as heaven and hell, are possible? Will qualify as parallel universes? Number one. Number two. It's more personal. Which is last week, my cat j 
just escaped as a result of some friends' mistakes, and she hasn't been, been seen since, which is, why would God's, my question is, is how come God's would allow me and my family to suffer the consequences for friends' mistakes? All right, let me start with your first question, which had to do alternate, uni parallel universe, right? Yes, it would like would heaven and hell qualify as possibly parallel universes like portrayed in, in say, string theory, M theory, and stuff like that? We don't really know. We know that hell ultimately will be some sort of physical place, uh, and heaven is actually a physical place too, a remade heavens and earth. Hell is a quarantine of evil. That's what God ultimately does for evil. He quarantines evil in a place where it can't interfere with the people who have accepted redemption. Now, where this is, nobody really knows, okay? Uh, so if you want to say it's in a different dimension, maybe you could say that. Uh, but, he but heaven is ultimately going to be a remade heavens and earth as we have now. Now, the second question, why does God allow suffering to be brought about by other people on us, well, I mean, right? By your mistakes, because it was an accident. Okay, well, accidents happen all the time. We live in a fallen world, right? Yeah. Um, and there's a number of reasons for this. The scriptures talk about some of it, but let me mention to you what happened once at um, Michigan State University. I was giving a presentation, this presentation, uh, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. And there was a mil militant atheist in the audience for the entire presentation. I knew that because he sat through the entire presentation looking like this. And I had some pretty good jokes in there. <laughs> and he didn't crack a smile once. So as soon as it was time for Q&A, Caleb, his hand shot up. And I said to him, yes, sir. And he said, if there is a good God, why doesn't he stop all the evil in the world? And I said, sir, that's an excellent question. Maybe because if he did, he might start with you and me because we do evil every day. Yeah. You ever notice when we complain about evil, we're always complaining about somebody else, right? God, why don't you stop him? God, why don't you stop her? If God wanted to stop all the evil in the world, he could. How could he do it? He could take away our free will. But if he takes away our free will, do we have the ability to love? Uh, no, no, sir. We've got to have free will in order to love. So free will gives us the ability to love, but also the ability to do evil. And I always ask people, if God were to stop evil at midnight tonight, would you still be alive at 12.01? No, sir. No, I wouldn't either. Now, we do live in a fallen world, and sometimes accidents happen. Sometimes we willfully commit sins and we hurt other people. God can bring good from that. Sometimes we can't see the good, right? Sometimes we can't see any good coming from something like this. However... The reason we can't see it is we're locked inside of time and God is outside of time. This one insight I learned really helped me with the problem of evil because, look, if evil doesn't bother you, you haven't thought about it enough, right? But this insight is called the ripple effect. You guys know what the ripple effect is? That every single event ripples forward to affect trillions of other events and billions of people. So let me use a more dramatic example than losing a cat. I've had people ask me, why has my baby died? Right. Now, I, I, I know why babies die in general because we live in a fallen world, but can I explain why this particular baby died? No, but I know why I can't explain it because I'm inside of time, God is outside of time. Maybe a baby dying today ripples forward to affect trillions of other events partially 
bringing forth or partially responsible for bringing forth the great evangelist 500 years from now who saves millions of people, right? I can't see how all those ripples come together, but God can. Now, this might not be a lot of comfort right now explaining it this way, Caleb, but God can bring good from evil and our pain and suffering can actually lead to good. In fact, he actually, he says this will happen. He says, he says that all things will work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purpose. He doesn't say all things are good. He said they'll work together for good. And sometimes the ripple effect can be the way he does it, even though we can't see it. Does that make sense? Yes, sir. All right? Make sense? Yes, sir. All right. We'll pray your cat comes back. You never know, but we'll, we'll do that. And by the way, this is a good question from Caleb. You know, um, sometimes uh, when you get a, a question on the problem of evil, you don't need a philosopher, you need a pastor, okay? Because the problem, although you can answer, give good answers intellectually, sometimes you just need a hug, right? All right. All right. Well, we'll pray the cat comes back. And if the cat doesn't, good's going to come from it somehow. All right. Thanks, brother. All right. Yes, ma'am. My name's Harmony. Say again. My name's Harmony. I'm hey, nervous. Hey, Harmony. No, that's all right. Go ahead. I think you're in harmony right now. Thank you. Go ahead. And thank you for this presentation as well. And thank you for visiting our church. My question is, in the beginning of the presentation, you were talking about how God is the cause of every second of everything. He's right. active. So if, like, the moments that he takes rest, as he did on the seventh day, um, my question is, is he still working, or is it by design that life is still happening? And to make it more personal, does that mean that he's active in my life every second of every moment, or is there some moments when he allows the design of what he created me to be to work by itself? Yes. <laughs> it's both. That God can intervene. See, God does three things, okay? He creates, he sustains, and he intervenes directly sometimes, okay? What he's doing most of the time is sustaining. But he can intervene directly in either through divine providence where God prearranges events so something happens that might look miraculous even though no natural law is overpowered or he can do a straight miracle where he does overpower natural law, okay? So God's doing all of that. Now, I think when it says he rests, I mean, he rested from creation, but he's not resting from sustaining, right? He's still sustaining the universe and sustaining us and he may intervene in order to do something special. Right? Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Harmony. <laughs> yes, sir. Hi, Dr. Turk. I'm Sam. Thanks hey, Sam. Thanks for your work in equipping the saints to give a defense for what yes, we Yes, sir. Uh, my question is, when, when you are, you know, you've got a lot of experience with addressing people's logical arguments or lack thereof. So when, when you do encounter people uh, who just don't make logical sense and can't see the error of their argument, such as uh, maybe redefining terms or mm -hmm. uh, maybe appealing to some sort of special revelation that only they have. 
When do you know when it's become futile to continue a conversation in that regard? Well, if things get really tense, what I normally do is I stop and I say, now look, we're all adults here, Mr. Poopy Pants. <laughs> that normally works, all right? <laughs> now, what you want to do is you want to ask questions, and that's where my friend Greg Kokel's book is so important. One question I mentioned that you ought to ask is, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And if they hesitate or say no, you could, you could have Jesus show up with you at their house so they wouldn't believe, right? They don't want it to be true. Mm -hmm. So that's a key question. The other questions that Greg mentions in the book, and they're in our app too, the Cross-Examined App under Quick Answers, three key questions you ought to be asking people. The first question is, what do you mean by that? Like, suppose your friend says, well, I can't believe the Bible because it's been changed throughout the centuries, right? Your first question should be, what do you mean by that? to get them to explain how has it changed throughout the centuries. Do you even know anything about the manuscripts, right? What do you mean by that? You need clarification. Second question, how did you come to that conclusion? Or if you want to customize that question for this particular question, you might say, how did you come to that conclusion? Have you investiga investigated the manuscript evidence for yourself? I can guarantee you the person's not going to say, well, yeah, just last night I was up reading a book about the Byzantine line of manuscripts, right? No, nobody's going to say that. Why? Because most people don't have evidence for the wor their worldview. They just heard a slogan they like. Yeah. And as soon as you ask them to explain the evidence behind the slogan, they can't do it. So ask them, what do you mean by that? And what evidence do you have for that conclusion? See if they have evidence for what they believe, in other words. Because when somebody says something, it's not your job to refute what they say, it's their job to support what they say. Okay, so always ask, what evidence do you have for that position? Now, the third question is an opportunity for you to provide evidence back in a nice way. And what you say is, have you ever considered that the Bible has not been changed throughout the centuries. And the reason we know that is we have so many manuscripts, almost 6,000 handwritten Greek manuscripts, that when we compare all those manuscripts, we can reconstruct the original with 99.5% accuracy. We know what the original said. So it's a nice way of you providing evidence back. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Have you ever considered? Now, ladies and gentlemen, these questions you can use for anything, not just Christianity. Parents, you know, if your kid calls you one night and says, hey, dad, I'm not going to be home by 11 like you wanted me to. Don't panic. Just first question, what do you mean by that? <laughs> right? Second question, how did you come to that conclusion? <laughs> Third question, have you ever considered if you're not home by 11, you're grounded for two weeks, right? Be right home, dad. By the way, by the way, husbands, 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 listen up. Never, ever, ever use these questions on your wife. I mean, if she calls you an idiot, don't say, what do you mean by that? Okay. How did you come to that conclusion? Because she's going to have a list 37 years long, and you are toast, right? So just get good at asking questions. And if you get more resistance, and they... They're not interested, move on to somebody else. Thank you. Right? All right, thanks a lot. Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Amy, and hey, my Amy. question is, what is the most effective thing you can say to a militant atheist who is going to shut you down in about a minute? <laughs> Let's go have pizza. <laughs> That's about all you can say. Well, you could say, if Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? 
You know, you might say, hey, you know, I, I noticed that whenever we talk about God or Christianity, I, I know it's kind of emotional for you. Do you mind me asking you, why is it emotional for you? Why do you have this visceral reaction against it? It might be that that person has been hurt by a Christian. And you know the biggest problem is in Christianity? Christians. Right? Church. Pastor Mike, wouldn't church be a lot easier if there were no people? I know Pastor Matt would say that, right? You're the care pastor. If you had no people, you, you wouldn't have any work, would you? So, so are you saying I should say something like if you... Um, believed in Christi if Christianity were true, would you become would a you Christian? Become a would Christian? Be the best thing to say? You might say that, or you might, before you say that, you might ask him, hey, I noticed that you get a little bit tense or it's emotional for you. Do you mind if I ask you why? Did you have, you, have you had some bad experience with Christians? Have, has the church mistreated you? Because if it has, I agree, that's wrong. But saying that Christianity's false because Christians have done bad things doesn't follow. Yeah. In Sometimes fact, look... No, I was going to say, let me ask you guys this. Suppose you, you have a favorite musical group, right, whoever it is, and you go, to, you go out somewhere and there's a band up there playing their song, they're covering their song, and they're not playing it well. Who do you blame? Do you say your favorite musical group stinks, or do you say they stink? They stink, right? The same thing is true in Christianity. If we Christians don't model Christ well, that's no reflection on Jesus. That's a reflection on us. And so we are fallen. In fact, I had to mention this debates with Christopher Hitchens, and he kept talking about how Christians have done many evil things, and I agree with him. We have done evil things. But I said, you're kind of proving our worldview because evil only makes sense if God exists. And we have done evil. And if we hadn't done evil, we wouldn't need a savior. In fact, I said to him, I said, Christopher, I'm a hypocrite. I can't live up to what Jesus said and did. But if I could, I wouldn't need him. I wouldn't be. I wouldn't need a savior if I was perfect. In fact, you know, when people tell me I can't go to church because there's too many hypocrites down there, I always say, come on down, pal. We got room for one more. <laughs> yes, yeah, sometimes right? people don't give you a lot of time if they're really resistant. They no, they don't. Yep. Yeah, we're all sinners. That's why we need a savior. All right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Michael. Hey, Michael. Um, with a universe so massive, mm -hmm. um, do you believe in intelligent life form? And if you do, would they be saved? I'm not so sure there's intelligent life here. <laughs> That's a good point. Well, uh, yeah. We don't know if there's intelligent life out there. Now, about 20 years ago, a couple of atheist scientists wrote a book called Rare Earth, and their estimation was, no, there's not life out there any other place because the conditions necessary to get the life as we know it, um, it's even, despite the size of the universe, it's very improbable there is life out there. But if there is life out there, it wouldn't change anything we believe about Christianity. It would just mean that, okay, there's other life out there. Whether it's moral life or not, that would depend as well as to whether or not it was moral life. And have they sinned and do they need a savior? That would, that would be something that wouldn't change what we believe, but it might add some information that we don't currently know. Thank All right. You. All right. Thanks a lot. Pastor Matt. Dr. Church, just one question. Actually, it's a comment. Parents at 445... I'm going to come back up here, 
And I'm going to ask you to um, get up and go grab your kids. Dr. Turk will keep the questions going, but we want to be mindful of our child care workers. This is awesome, by the way. You guys having fun? All right. I'll, I'll be back in seven minutes to let you know to grab your kids. Thank you. Yes, sir. Praise Jesus first and foremost. Praise Jesus. There you go. I would like to use a cocoa tactic on you. And I want to preface before we go, I'm really seeking understanding because I genuinely believe we're arriving at the same place using different words. Mm -hmm. So you use the word free. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I've read Luther, I've read, and I've listened to all of you apologists mm -hmm. that are on podcast. Can you please define when you use the word free, what it is you mean by that? You mean like free will? Yes, sir. I believe we have, the, we have the ability to choose the good or choose evil when given a moral choice. And if we don't have that ability, then the world is a sham. Does everyone have that ability? Do all people have that ability? Yes, all people have that ability. Now, some people Even, have suppressed the truth enough right. that they, they, God has given them up, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1. So they've been given up to a depraved mind, and not only are they not doing good, they're doing evil and cheering on other people who are doing evil. They may be beyond the point of no return, but we don't know who those people are. God does. Okay, maybe ask another question about uh -huh. putting maybe your definition of free back to you. Let me uh -huh. know if it's acceptable. Yeah. Um, the ability to make those choices, good or bad, without influence or without... Um, well, we're all influenced to a certain degree. Exactly. This is why so Jesus... We're, we're speaking the same thing. Yeah, yeah, this is why Jesus says, to whom much is given, much will be required. Mm -hmm. You know, that people who know a lot more, in fact, he says this in Luke chapter 12, people who know a lot more and do evil are going to be punished more than people who didn't know very much and did evil. Right. Because that makes sense, right? That's what justice is. It's, it's deep, you know? It's like we have this nature, and then we've got the regenerate heart. And, mm -hmm. and can we choose good without the regenerate heart? The nature, well, like, the example that I love to think about, mm -hmm. and it's, it's, it's a bunny, right? It's a bunny mm -hmm. rabbit. And I'm mm -hmm. sure you probably heard something like this. You put the bunny rabbit down, and you've got a Wait, is this a rabbit trail? No, no, no. <laughs> you got a bowl of carrots and a bowl of meat, and mm -hmm. you let the rabbit go, and he's always going to go with what his nature is, right? Mm -hmm. We've got this sin nature, mm -hmm. and not until we've got a regenerate heart can we choose good? And then we look at ideas like all good and perfect gifts are from God, so was it us? Or 64-6, our good works are filthy rags, for the better term of that one. Or any of these other things, there is no good, no, not one. So like... Okay, well, you're, it seems to me what you're getting at... Are we truly free is, to choose good? Is, is it us that chooses it? is the five-point Calvinist view, which says that in order for you to choose God, he has to choose you first in the sense of regenerating your heart, then you can choose him. If that's the case, and God wants all to be saved, why hasn't he done that with everyone? Because God will have mercy upon whom he will have mercy. Well, then he's not a good God. Why? Because if he's infinitely good, you got to look at that verse in context. You're, yes, you're, yes, you're, 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 you're talking about uh, Romans chapter 9, which, which comes, comes from, from Jeremiah, okay? Which, yeah. So I'm, I'm not saying the verse isn't right. I'm saying I think it's context. being taken out of context, okay. okay? What I'm saying is God um, wants all to be saved, and if all are not saved, what could be the reason they're not saved? Us. Yes. Us. Their free will saying, God, I don't want you. 
If you can't grieve the Holy Spirit and God just zaps who he wants to be, uh, to be saved mm -hmm. and he wants all to be saved, why isn't everybody saved? See? Yeah, so I See, think we're saying the same yeah. thing, just kind of... The problem is, in my view, five-point Calvinism... I don't believe in that. Well. Five-point yeah. Calvinism makes God infinitely just, but only finitely loving. Yeah. Putting God in a box, well, in my opinion. Yeah, but God is in a box to a certain extent by True. his nature, okay? What I'm saying here is, is that God wants all to be saved and all are not saved. If the reason they're not saved is because God can't force free creatures to love him. That's the contradiction. Love must be freely given. Thanks so much. All right. God bless you. Thank you. Yes, sir. Hi. Good evening. How you doing? What's your name? Excellent. My name is Everest. Like Everest. Go ahead, sir. Uh, first of all, I want to say thank you for being here. Yes, sir. It's wonderful to see you in person. I've been checking you out on YouTube. Excellent stuff. Mom, we got another one. <laughs> Go ahead, Everest. All right. So... I've been teaching the Bible for decades, and I've been thinking about something. I have a theory, and I wanted to bounce it off of you. Hey, wait, wait, hang on. What, you guys can't stay for eight hours? What's going on? No, just kidding. Go ahead. Good time for parents. That's it. It's parents. Yes, go ahead. Yes. So I have a theory, and I wanted to bounce it off of you and get your feedback. Okay. So Christians ask the question, Believers who have died and gone to heaven, what are they doing right now? That's a question people have. Okay. I've, I've been thinking about this for years. Uh-huh. And this is my theory, and I want your feedback on uh -huh. it. When we die, we enter eternity. Time, as we know it, when he exists here on this planet, in mm -hmm. this physical universe. The Bible says God inhabits eternity. So my theory is, whenever a Christian dies... The Bible says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Yes. So we enter eternity immediately. My theory is this. The first Christian who died after the resurrection and the last Christian who would die, they both enter eternity at exactly the same moment. Every born-again believer for the last 2,000 years, we're all going to enter heaven at exactly the same moment because time ceases to exist the way it exists now and we all enter eternity at the same moment. What do you think? Everest, I don't think we have time for this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, why do you think there's no time in eternity? Well, I don't think there's no time. I think time as we know it moves differently. That's what eternity is. Well, that would be speculation. I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that, as you said, we're absent from the body and then we are present with the Lord. But then there are future events that will still occur and there will be an ultimate judgment and then the ultimate separation between uh, the quarantined in hell and the people who are redeemed who will then get physical bodies and inhabit the heavens and the earth remade. Yes. So it's not the end state that when you die, you're in the end state. You're not technically in heaven. You're just with the Lord. Okay. The hev heaven is going to be a physical place ultimately. So, but I think we're doing a lot of speculation here. And it's interesting that the Bible doesn't give us a lot of details. It does say this, no eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those that love him. Amen. Right. So there's many things we don't know, but we do know it's going to be great. Yes, sir. There you go. Thank you. Thanks, Everest. <laughs> By the way, that's a, it, the name Everest, it's perfect for that theory. 
right? Isn't it? Yes, ma'am. Hi, my name is Kim, and hey, I Kim. was wondering, what do you, why do you think that sin can only be atoned by a blood sacrifice? Okay, come a little closer if you would. The question is, why can sin only be atoned by a blood sacrifice? Mm -hmm. Well, to redeem blood and flesh human beings, either we have to pay the sin personally, or another being like us, who isn't sinful, has to pay. And in that case, that was Jesus, who was 100% human and 100% divine, and his human nature died on the cross to pay for our sin. So I don't, it would seem to me that would make at least logical sense that for me not to get punishment for what I've done, a being like me, blood and flesh, would have to take my punishment on himself so I'm not punished. And that's what Jesus did for us. So it does say in Leviticus, there's no redemption without the blood, right? Without a blood sacrifice. And philosophically, I, that seems to make sense to me. Could it have been another way? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But it seems to make sense that in order for us to be redeemed, we have to have a mediator. And that mediator has to be like us in one sense and also on the other side of the divide, divine on another sense to bridge the gap between human beings and the divine. So Jesus is 100% divine and 100% human, and the human being died in order to bridge the gap. I see. Okay, thank you. All right, thank you. Good question. Yes, sir. Hi, my name is Rashad. Hey, Rashad. Um, so recently I had a discussion during Thanksgiving, and a friend of mine was asking me, he was talking about, like, Muslims committing terrorism in the, in the name of their God. Uh-huh. And... I told him I objected to it and I said it was wrong. And he, was, he would ask me, well, who are you to say that they're wrong? And, you know, growing up, I grew up around, uh, my father's in the nation of Islam. Hey, stop right there for a second before you get there. When he says, who are you to say that they're wrong, right? right he just said you were wrong for saying that. You notice that? Yeah. He's doing the same thing he claims you shouldn't do. He's claiming you're wrong for saying other people are wrong, in other words. Did you notice that? Yeah. So you might want to call him on that right off the bat. Right. Right? And you might also want to say, my dad can kick your dad's butt. <laughs> right? like, well, why, just, just while you're at it. I right? remember that. Go ahead. <laughs> um, so growing up, you know, I grew up around mother was Roman Catholic, father's in a nation of Islam. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been around Hebrew Israelites, five percenters, all these guys. So... Another question that he asked me was, or that I would ask you is, how can you in confidence tell someone that their religion is wrong and yours is right? Well, I think what you want to do is you want to rely on evidence. And I would never say that, ev that any other world religion is completely wrong because most world religions have some truth in them. For example, Islam believes in one God. They don't believe in a trinity, but they believe there's one God. They believe that you ought to give to the poor, 2.5%, just like Christians do. Is that right? Yeah. Um, <laughs> they believe you ought to pray, right? They, they have true things in their religion. But where they disagree with the scriptures, they're wrong. Like, for example, Islam does not believe Jesus even died, so he couldn't have risen from the dead. According to Surah 4, verse 157, they said, Jesus didn't die. Someone was substituted for him on the cross, and God took Jesus straight to heaven. Now, these are the only people in the world, even atheists, agree Jesus died. Bart Ehrman, one of the top uh, New Testament skeptical scholars, says there's nothing more certain in the, from the ancient world than Jesus was crucified at the hand of the Romans. The Muslims are the only people that don't believe this. 
And they come along 600 years after Jesus and try and say this. So I wouldn't say that everything in, in other world religions is wrong. I would simply say where they disagree with the scriptures, if indeed the scriptures are true, then they're wrong. And I think you can give evidence that the scriptures are true. See, really, the question is, do you believe in a system of truth, but you might have some errors around it? Or do you believe in a system of error which has some truth around it? Okay, I think Christianity is a system of truth, but I may have some errors in my understanding of it. I think Islam is a system of error, but there are some things they get right. And so you have to evaluate that on a case-by-case -case basis. Thank right? you. All right, thanks. Yes, ma'am. Hey, what's your name? Uh, Stephanie. Hey, Stephanie. Great name. That's my wife's name. Um, Hi, honey. <laughs> She's not watching. How would you deal with a close family member that considers themselves paganist? They're a pagan. Yes. I would ask them, what do you mean by pagan? What does that mean? What would they, how would they respond, do you think? What do they believe? Um, witchcraft stuff. Oh, witchcraft. Yeah. Hmm. I would say what you believe is true. No, I would tell them what you believe about witchcraft is true. That's why you ought to stay away from it. Right? There is, there is another side. There is a demonic realm. And if you get involved in it, it is going to hurt you eventually. Okay, now what about like the people that believe that there is such thing as dark magic and light magic? Uh, there is dark magic, and there's nothing light about it. Uh, Satan can tempt you into doing it because it might bring some personal benefit to yourself, but eventually it is going to hurt somebody, probably you if you're involved in it, and probably others. Okay. So stay away from it. All right. All right? Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. <laughs> yes, sir. You raise this a little Good evening, sir. It was a pleasure to meet you. Um, Thank you, sir. I have a question that I think probably was answered already, but I stood in line, so I think I can try to ask uh -huh. it in a different way. <laughs> right? Um, we all know that God has a will, and God has given men a will, right? We get our will from God. And if God has his will, is men will stronger than God in this sense, that God could have created a world where all would be safe is the, is the question we're going to ask, right? Why don't all men be saved if it's God will that men be saved? He could have created a world where all be saved, I guess, which would go against his will, um, will of love, right? Because you need free will to have love, right? And then maybe that wouldn't work because then everyone that is saved is only saved because God forced it upon them, which is not love. Right. And then God could have created this world where probably it allows his free will to reign and love it would be exercised and men would be able to come to God as freely as possible. Well then, is the will of man stronger than God so that God can't intervene without defying love? Like, you know what I'm saying? Because he has a will. Yeah, I, um, I don't think looking at it as stronger or not, I just think it's a logical issue. 
that while it may be logically possible that God can create a universe where everybody is saved, it may not be actually achievable with free creatures, right? Because God can't force free creatures to do something because then they wouldn't be free, right? By definition, free creatures get to do what they want within certain limits, obviously, depending upon how much freedom God gives them. So it might be that after God creates the second person, the third person's going to sin. Does that mean that God, his, his, his hands are tied and he can't create a universe with more than two people? No, he can still create more and offer redemption to everyone, but only some will accept it. This is why a lot of times you'll get questions that are really bad questions from people when they'll say something like, can, can God, uh, can God uh, make a rock so big he can't lift it or for something, something like that, right? Well, this is known as a category mistake. Why? Because if you ask the person, how big is the rock, they're going to say big. You say, how big is, is big? Really big. How big is really big? Infinitely big. Now, what have they done when they said that? They've, they've gone from a category of finite rocks to infinite rocks, and there's no such thing as an infinite finite rock, right? Rocks, by definition, are finite. They have edges to them. They have a surface to them. So any rock God can make, God can move. God can't make a square circle. Doesn't exist. God can't create a married bachelor. Doesn't exist. I know some guys try, but it doesn't exist. God can't create a one-ended stick. Doesn't exist. God can't create an honest politician. I mean, come on. There's some things that are too hard for God, except Ron DeSantis. All right. And if I may, if, if I, may I have one, one more question, and that's okay. kind of out there. Um, we know that God, the blood of Christ saves us all, right? Mm -hmm. We're here because of the blood of Christ. We all sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? And let's say someone was gay, which I'm not, but I'm just asking. Unless someone was what? Gay, right? Okay. And they chose that particular lifestyle. Mm -hmm. They say that they love God, that they believe in Jesus, they believe in the resurrection, mm -hmm. they believe everything doctrinally sung that we believe in, right? Mm -hmm. Except they choose this particular lifestyle, right? Mm -hmm. And they die. Would they go to heaven? And the reason I ask that question is this, because even us, Okay, I would just say, who did not choose that lifestyle, even to the point of death, I personally believe still falls short of the glory of God has it not been for the blood of Christ that covers us, right? So even to that point for them, will it cover them even though they say they believe in all the song doctrines and everything, but still choose presumption? Okay, all I can tell you is what the Apostle Paul said. Okay, and the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 has a similar situation. He's got somebody in the church at Corinth who says he's a believer who is, who is having a sexual relationship with his father's wife. And what does Paul say? Expel the immoral brother. I'll hand him over to Satan. Hopefully, he'll come to his senses, yeah. right? The only person not welcome in a church is someone who claims to be a believer but says that known sin isn't sin. That person needs to be kicked out for his own benefit and the benefit of the congregation. Everybody else is welcome. So if there's someone comes to this church and says, I'm not a Christian, but I believe in adultery and same-sex marriage, and I believe in uh, fornication and all these things, they're welcome here. But as soon as they say they're a Christian and they say these things are fine, according to Paul, 
for their benefit and the benefit of the congregation, they need to be separated from the church. So the presumptuous sin actually stops them from... I don't know who's going to be saved and who isn't. Only God does. But I'm going to side with what Paul says about how we should treat such sins. Yeah. Uh, you remember there's a section in 1 Corinthians 6 which says that certain people won't inherit the kingdom of God. And a lot of people just look at the homosexuals there. But, you know, it also says the covetous won't inherit the kingdom of God. That means all of us, too. But then if you keep reading, it says that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified. So you're saved by grace regardless of what works you do or bad works you do. But that doesn't mean that a person should stay in the church if he's going, oh, no, it's just fine. I, I would be worried about that person's salvation if they said that. Yeah. I mean, why do, you call it, why do you claim to be a Christian when you're disagreeing with Jesus? Why like, would you do that? Yeah. But that's what a lot of people do. Yeah. All right, thank, thank you. you. Yes, sir. Hi, I'm Ben. I'm hey, ben. a little nervous, but... Oh, that's all right, good. Isn't hell in and of itself like getting what you want the moment you want it? Because, like, I know you can't base your theology off of, like, movies and stuff like that or, or TV shows, but I watched The Twilight Zone. Um, kind of kind of freaked me out, I'm not going to lie. But um, I was watching it, and this robber, he got shot, and he, like, came to the conclusion, like, oh, I must be in heaven. Because, like, he's going to the lottery, he's winning every single time, he's getting every woman that he wants, he's getting, like, literally everything he wants the moment he wants it. He's like, can I get a billion dollars? Billion dollars. Can I get a nice car? Car. Uh, I'm going to win every single like, lottery. And then he's like starting to slowly go insane. Mm -hmm. He's like, I need to get out of here. And he mm -hmm. like asked the, the person, uh, the person in the white suit, oh, I think I'm in the wrong place. And he says, no, you're in the other place, hell. Getting everything you want the moment you want it. Mm -hmm. So isn't that what hell is? Obviously, it's like, it's outer darkness, nailing, wailing and gnashing of teeth. Terrifying. Um, you can't see anything. Furnace of fire. I don't want anyone to go there. Um, but isn't that what hell is? Getting what you want? Like, I don't want to live well, life it, with God. It, God's like, here you go. Yeah, yeah, live yeah. To a certain extent, me. you're right. But I don't think you're, you're, you're winning the lottery and doing all that stuff that the yeah. Twilight Zone talked about. You are getting separation from God, which is what hell is. Um, in fact, I'll just illustrate this. We just did a podcast on this. Uh, it's called uh, um, Eternal Punishment for Temporal Sins? Question mark. And I'll relate what happened at University of Michigan a number of years ago. I was doing a debate with an atheist by the name of Eddie Tabash. And during the debate, uh, Eddie said to me, my mother was a survivor of the Holocaust. She lived a life full of pain and suffering. And toward the end of her life, someone offered her the gospel, but she rejected it. And then she died. Is she in hell right now? And I said, Eddie, I don't know where your mother is. I don't know if she had a deathbed conversion or not. But if she didn't accept Christ before she died, then God is too loving to force her into heaven against her will. Right. You see, because the, 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 the idea here is, is that everybody wants to go to heaven. That is not true. There have been people, of course, running from Jesus their entire lives. But Jesus is in heaven. So what's he going to do in the afterlife? Going, hey, where are you going? You're with me now. Get over here. That wouldn't be right, right? You say, what's all this business about hell? 
Well, I used an illustration with the University of Michigan audience that night. It was for the ladies. So ladies, I'm just going to treat you like the University of Michigan audience. Ladies, have you ever had a man pursue you whom you did not want to date? Some of you are going, yeah, and he's sitting next to me right now. <laughs> right? He will not leave me alone. Whenever I ask that question, the women always giggle and the men look at their shoes. They're like, is she looking at me right now? Well, suppose this man keeps pursuing you, ladies. He keeps pursuing you, ladies, and he, he keeps asking you out, and you finally say, look, I like you, but only as a friend. Oh, ladies, why don't you just stick in the knife and turn it? Every man has heard the dreaded friend rejection. Gentlemen, if you ever get the dreaded friend rejection, move on. She's not interested. In fact, I have some shocking news for you. She doesn't even like you as a friend. <laughs> Am I right, ladies? Come on. Yeah, yeah, look, you're all going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to let you down nice. If I was interested, uh, I, 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 I would really like you. If you were a friend, I would really be open. But suppose this doesn't stop this guy. He keeps asking you, he keeps asking you, and he finally says, look, I love you so much, I'm going to force you to love me. Ladies run, screaming from the building. Can he force you to love him? No, love by definition must be freely given. So if he did love you, what would he do? He would leave you alone. That's what God does for us. He sends us cards, letters, and flowers. He sends us creation. He sends us conscience. He sends us Christ. He sends us Calvary Chapel, Port St. Lucie. He sends us, if we're, off in a, if, if we're off in a foreign land somewhere and we're a Muslim and we want to know the gospel, he may send a dream or a vision. This has been verified many times. And if we all keep saying no, no, no to that, God will give you up to your own desires. You're going to be separated from him from heaven because you don't want to be with him. You say, well, what could be so bad about being separated from God? Well, let's think about it this way. Everybody, whether a Christian or not, gets some of the common grace of God, right? Everybody experiences love. Everybody experiences relationships. Everyone experiences a hope for a future. We experience these things, right? Whether you're a Christian or not, you experience these things. But I want you to imagine a place where there is no love, where there is no hope, where there is no future. There's just stone cold, narcissistic self-absorption. That is Washington. <laughs> Actually, that is hell. You're separated from the ultimate source of goodness by your own choice. So. To a certain extent, you're right. You're getting what you want. It's life without God. Yeah, you're, okay. you're getting a life without God. Look, if there is an afterlife, and there is, there's only two possible destinations. You're either going to be with God in the afterlife, that's heaven. You're going to be separated from God in the afterlife, that's hell. In fact, C.S. Lewis put it best. He said, there's only two kinds of people in the world. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. So I know it sounds weird, but hell proves that God is love and man is free. Yes. Because you get to go where you want. You want to be separated from God? Fine. You're not going to like it, but you're, you don't want the alternative either. All right? Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Hi. Yes, sir. Hi, thanks. Uh, it's Kevin. Hey, Kevin. Kevin. Quick question. Um, yeah. I know it says that, like, for those who um, uh, don't come to faith in Christ, they spend eternity in hell. Mm -hmm. if they don't repent. And Jesus died for our sins. My question is, um, and I've never really been able to kind of get an answer that, sat, that, that I can understand. Christ died for our sin, yet he didn't spend eternity in hell. 
He died for everybody's sin, but three days later, he resurrected and is now seated at the right hand of Father. So why isn't it that Christ, why is it that Christ didn't spend eternity in hell if he paid for our sins like we would? Okay, good question. Number one, it was the quality, not the quantity of the punishment. He was separated from God. In fact, the only time he calls God, God, and not his father is when he's on the cross, when he's quoting the psalm where he says, he says, uh, why have you forsaken me? God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken judicially, legally. He was separated from the father, and he had never experienced that before. Okay? So he experienced the worst of the worst, not just the physical suffering, but the idea of being separated from his father. And you don't need um, an eternal, let me put it another way. A lot of people will say, and this is what we talked about on the podcast, how can we experience uh, eternal punishment for temporal sins, right? A couple of responses to that. Number one, the duration of the punishment is normally longer than the duration it took you to commit the sin, right? Like you could, it might take you two seconds to pull a trigger and kill somebody, but you don't go to jail for two seconds, right? You're going much longer. Secondly, when you're in hell, you continue to sin. You continue to be against God. And so it's not, it's not just this temporal sin that you're being punished for. You're being punished because you continually rebel against God. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Thank All you. All right. Thank you, Kevin. Perfect. Final question. Here it is. Yes, ma'am. Oh, no. What's Hi. your name? Um, my name is Sophia. Oh, no, there's one more. Sorry. Um, I had a question. Um, uh, why would God create the tree of uh, good and evil, or good and mm -hmm. evil, uh, for in a perfect world that already existed? Okay, um, that's a, reminds me of a question that Augustine had once that he couldn't answer, and what he said was after the question was asked, oh no, the question was what was God doing before he created, and Augustine said creating hell for people who ask questions like that. <laughs> now, the answer, why did God put a tree in the garden where he knew that, well, we're going to sin? Well, thankfully he did. Why? Because if he didn't give us the opportunity to make a choice, we wouldn't be moral creatures. So by giving us the opportunity to either obey or disobey, he's given us the opportunity to love or hate. He's given us the opportunity to make a choice, to actually love God or reject God. So although he knew it would happen, just like he knows everything's going to happen, he can redeem it. He can allow it to happen. In fact, I had a question once at Wright State University where a young man got up to the microphone. He was an atheist, and he said, what would you call a parent who had a, a six-year-old child, and he showed him a loaded gun, and he put it in a drawer, and he said, don't touch the gun, and later the kid went and got the gun and shot himself. I would say that would be a bad parent. And he said, well... What about God who puts this tree in the garden and tells him not to, you know, uh, eat from it? Would, would he be a bad God? I said, no, here's why. If the parent, let's, let, let's make sure the analogy works here. In, in your analogy, um, the parent represents God, right? Yep. Okay. Well, if the parent gives the kid a gun and the kid shoots himself with it, and he can't resurrect the kid, yeah, that would be a bad parent. But if the parent could resurrect the child, would it matter? No. So in the real world, yes, God can give us the ability to do evil, but he can also redeem us from that evil. And he does. 
So he gives us the ability to make a choice. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right, thank you. Yes, sir. How you doing, sir? Name's Melvin. Yes, sir. So I wanted your perspective on uh, Lazarus, uh -huh. the rich man. Yes. So there was some dialogue with the uh, rich man. Yes. With someone, I'm not sure who. Uh-huh. But what is your perspective on that? People say when you die, you go into a sleep. Uh, it, I guess nothing happens, but it talks about Lazarus being carried to uh, Abraham's, Abraham's bosom. bosom. Yeah. Right? This is a story that Jesus told in Luke 16. Yes. And there are different interpretations of this. I think the clearest passage on what happens when we die is that absent from the body, present with the Lord, if you're a believer. Okay. Uh, Luke 16 appears to be talking about the idea that consciousness does exist in the afterlife. And there is a great gulf fixed between the place of the redeemed and the place of the irredeemed. And notice one other thing that goes on. Uh, Lazarus, it's not the Lazarus resurrected in, in John 11. This is another Lazarus who is, was a poor man on earth, but now he's in Abraham's bosom after he has... Uh, died right. and the rich man is in hell or in Sheol right. and he is saying to Lazarus hey or tell Lazarus to come down and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire notice that the rich man doesn't say I shouldn't be here he doesn't say I got a raw deal he's still treating Lazarus like Lazarus is his servant his attitude hasn't changed at all right. and all he says is Hey, tell my brothers about this place. And Jesus says, they have Moses and the prophets. If they don't believe them, they're not going to believe even if someone rises from the dead. Notice the issue here is, isn't evidence. The issue is the heart. They doesn't matter if Jesus rises from the dead. They're not going to believe. They're irredeemed because they don't want to be redeemed. That's what I take from that passage. Got you. Secondly. Right? Yeah. Uh, with that being said, uh -huh. uh, Disciples that have passed away and then, you know, when folks say, you know, my grandpa or grandma can uh -huh. see me and do you believe that? That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if that's the case, if they can see us or not. I know some say yes and some say no. I don't know. Pastor Mike, do you have a thought on that? Do, uh, do uh, people who have predeceased us, our loved ones, can they see what's going on here? My opinion is no. Yeah. He says, that no, because we don't have the attributes of God. So, uh, but it's speculative, right? There are Christians that will disagree on that. So, I don't know. All right. All right? Yes, sir. All right, thanks. One more. All right, one more. Yeah. You are all doing amazing. Last question. We're going to say some closing comments, and then we'll be out so we can have some dinner. All right. All right. <laughs> Yes, ma'am. What's your name? Hi, my name is Bonnie. Hey, Bonnie. Um, are you familiar with Ben Shapiro? Yes. Um, would you be... He just talks a little bit too slow for me. Uh, <laughs> me too. Yeah. I got to um, speed him up. But no, so, go ahead. Um, I, obviously, you debate many people. Mm -hmm. um, I love Ben, but mm -hmm. uh, I'm sure you are aware of his feelings about Jesus. He doesn't even believe he's a prophet. Uh-huh. Um, would you ever have the opportunity or be interested in debating Ben Shapiro on Jesus? 
sure, I would love to talk to Ben about it. And actually someone who's even more qualified than I am to do that, William Lane Craig, has already had that conversation. And you can actually right. see it on YouTube because Ben had right. Bill on his program, say, just before COVID. And Bill laid out some evidence for him. And Ben just kind of pushed it off to the side and said he wasn't really interested in going further. That's his prerogative. It's his show. He can do what he wants. Right. And I guess uh, based on a, a lot of the questions that have been asked here, and, and you definitely discussed it, um, that question of if Christianity was mm -hmm. true, mm -hmm. um, would you become a Christian? Right. And so would you say that he falls into that category of just, you know, I don't, I'm not interested. I don't know where Ben is personally on that. I don't know how he would answer that question. I'm not going to speak for him. I do love most of his views. I think he's one of the brightest minds out there. Yes. He does have Christians on his staff that work with him, like uh, Matt Walsh. Right. right. And yes. um, there's another gentleman. I can't think of his name Michael right now. Knowles. Michael Knowles. But there's still one other guy. Bald guy? Clavin. Clavin. Not, not from Cheers. Okay. <laughs> not, not that guy. Okay, but yeah, those guys are Christians. So uh, Dennis Prager is another brilliant mind oh, yeah, who is, who so is I Jewish. So I would love, I was thinking about this after listening to the sermon that you gave this morning, uh -huh. and all of a sudden it popped in my mind. That would be like one of my greatest life streams to see you and Ben. So anyway, there's that. All right. <laughs> thank you. Well, thank you so much, Bonnie.